views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Dwell among all God's people when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the sea spill over and the Mountains shake, break, and fall. If the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, good evening and welcome to tonight's broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. My name is Scotty Reed, one of the co hosts and producers and founders of this program, which has been going on continuously since. Uh, for at least five years now Well, not at least, but we know five years We just had our five year anniversary in July Now you're used to hearing Max And you hear Max right there in our intro music All the time, opening up New Abolitionist Radio But Max is taking a much-deserved break from the airways, airways While he regroups and focuses on his next moves Which include an upcoming abolitionist trip to Ghana, Africa On the invitation of local abolitionists proving that the new abolitionist movement is an international movement just as it was prior to 1865. So sitting in tonight for Max as a co-host will be new abolitionist Yusef Hassan who will be doing a weekly segment going forward on new abolitionist radio covering the amendments of the U.S. Constitution. We'll start tonight's broadcast off by defining slavery but first let me also mention also joining us as a co-host tonight will be Otis L. Griffin a Virginia abolitionist researcher and member of the online group Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery I, I think we might have 3,000 members hundreds of them are active plenty of activity goes on uh, since we established that as a research group for the program where we share a lot of information, activists, and, and people concerned about slavery and have declared themselves modern abolitionists. So that's uh, check us out on Facebook if you're in that group. We also started a new one on, well, it's not new anymore, but BTR Community, the social media uh, network that was set up as a sister platform to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Um, so we have a group there just simply titled Abolitionists. So if you are on BTR community, make sure that you uh, check out the information, join the group so that you can get updates however you choose them, emails, um, texts, whatever, whenever there's new information posted in the Abolitionist group in BTR community. Um, now, we will be starting tonight's broadcast defining slavery. Why? Well, because earlier... 
I had a conversation with Max. I, I was calling Max to ask him some questions about tonight's program. And y'all know Max is a passionate person. Of course, he's a poet. That's what he do. He's a spoken word artist. And so he laid some words on me about some concerns that he had about people in, I guess, supposedly abolitionist groups who are asking him or asking you know others well what's your definition of slavery so there seems to be some debate about what constitutes slavery and uh you know what some abolitionists are calling slavery isn't slavery now of course max brought that up in a speech of his life where he said that you know you you can't abolish mass incarceration you you can abolish slavery though mass incarceration is just a symptom it's a public policy slavery which is also public policy you could could argue but it is the supreme law of the land through that 13th amendment if you're if we're going to recognize the u.s constitution as the supreme law of the land then that's what it says so you know there are several questions you can ask so we'll open up the floor for that of course for any callers anytime you want to join in with some information just watch your background noise um, we're just looking for some clarification about the definition surrounding the word for this very evil institution and practice that has existed in some form or fashion for centuries all over the planet. All right, so uh, I do want to welcome in our guest co-host this evening. Uh, we have Yousef joining us, and I also want to unmute uh, Brother Otis. Uh, how are you gentlemen doing tonight, my fellow abolitionists? Hey, peace, my brother. How's everything going? As well as can be expected under these terroristic conditions where they practice in slavery, I'm doing a lot better than many others. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on tonight. <laughs> you know, uh, although Max and I both wear size 15, his shoes are a lot bigger than mine, you know. So, you know. It's just an honor to be here and it's in his stead. So thanks for the opportunity. Otis, good evening I, to you, sir. Got got no complaints, man. I got I was kind of surprised when I checked my messages. I had to send back the mess and ask him had he been hacked. So that tells you where my <laughs> mindset is. I I'll lean in and pull or shove and do what I can. All right, so uh, we hope that others will join in with any questions that they have because this ultimately had this show was conceptualized as an education tool. It's, it's a tool. It's an abolitionist education uh, tool. And for five years, I think that we have have you know fulfilled that mission in educating uh, anyone who has access to this information and hopefully not only educating them but uh, converting them to become modern abol abolitionists. So that's what this program is founded on and that's what we'll be doing over the next two hours and I'm, and both of you uh, uh, abolitionist brothers on, that's co-hosting with me tonight for the first time, y'all well versed in it. All right, or Max wouldn't ask you to host if, if he didn't think that you knew what was going on or how to contextualize uh, these news stories. Because that's what we do a lot of. We take these news stories from the headlines, and those headlines can be very deceptive or, or tricky, either it's intentional 
or it's just somebody just looking to create some clickbait bait but you know we do identify portions of those stories that make it clear that you know this points to slavery in the 13th amendment legalized uh human trafficking in and slavery so I'm, I'm confident in both of you gentlemen but yourself I want to toss it to you because I got a feeling I don't know I didn't ask you but I got a feeling you more informed about this online debate that has been going on uh, concerning uh, people asking other people to define slavery so you know I posted a meme of the Google dictionary it's a little dictionary that pops up and it gives you several different Definition. So I'm using that as as the feature image for today's program. Um, but I threw that out there. But I mean, what's what's this debate really about? I, I can't believe that people need slavery to be defined for them, unless those people are being intentionally uh, deceptive and, and and are probably pro-slavery and they just doing what they doing, uh, creating confusion. So you self, what do you know anything about this? Oh yeah, I do, and you know what's what's really uh, unique is that at the time that you posted that, I was in my Black's Law writing down the definitions of slavery, slave, and involuntary involuntary servitude. You know, because when uh, when we look at the Thirteenth Amendment, you know, and we look at the language, it's important understanding the definitions and how they applied within the law because you know we all can most of us can recite it you know verbatim neither slavery nor involuntary servitude is except except as punishment for a crime where the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the united states or any place subject to their jurisdiction most of us know that by heart you know but if you don't understand what slavery is or involuntary servitude then your 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 understanding is flawed from the beginning, you know, and nothing, you know, really shined a light on that more than when we were in D.C., you know, and it was it was the cause of why Max went off the way he did, because so many people really don't know what slavery really is. They have so many synonyms for slavery that did not actually calling it what it is, and if you look at what the definition of slavery is and how it's being applied within the United States and, and throughout the world, then you can really see what slavery is. And it doesn't take a lot of worrying. There's not a lot of words. You know, it's something that a child can understand. You know, when you have to get all wordy with your definition, then you really don't even understand what the word means. And... You know, I won't mention names, but I did see, you know, a couple of people in uh, a couple of different groups asking for definitions because some are not really convinced that it's slavery, and then you have others who are convinced that it's slavery. And for some reason, all you know, just out of nowhere, people that seem to be you know, following the mission and now starting to question whether or not we're really fighting slavery. You know, that some seem to have bought into the mass incarceration or the prison industrial complex or any of the other symptoms of slavery that people have been using. You know, so the first thing we should just look at, and this is coming directly from Black's Law Dictionary, 
for those that don't know, Black's Law Dictionary, you know, uh, created by uh, Justice Black, former U.S. Supreme Court Justice, you know, that uh, this dictionary is like the Bible of legal definitions. So this is, this is the, this is, you know, often referred to in many court cases, you know, many courtrooms, many uh, state legislatures, you know, the Congress, the Senate, everywhere, they, they use Black's Law dif Dictionary. So the question is, what is slavery? Well, the very simple definition, the condition of a slave, that civil relation in which one man has absolute power over the life, fortune, and liberty of another. Now, just in that simple definition, the first thing that's going to come to mind is the uh, we can we can mention the uh, the clause within the the uh, sorry, give me one second. The clause right within the Fourteenth uh, Amendment when we start talking about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So once that's stripped from a person, they are, in essence, in slavery. So once they no longer have control over their own life, they have no liberty, and, they have, and their pursuit of happiness is cut off, they are in slavery. Then you say, okay, well, what is a slave? So going back to Black's Law, simple definition. A person who is wholly subject to the will of another, one who has no freedom of action, but whose person and service is a wholly under the control of another. Simple definition. Doesn't even need explanation. You don't have to say anything beyond that. No, you don't. Then you say, you should. what is involuntary servitude? Now, we know the 13th Amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. But let's look at the definition according to Black's Law Dictionary of what involuntary servitude is. It's a term used when a person is forced to work against his will. Slavery. So in essence, slavery and involuntary servitude is the same exact thing based on the legal definition. So there is no distinction between it because there are those that actually come in and they try to bring in some old English uh, neither nor what applies where it starts talking about acceptance punishment for a crime was only applying to the involuntary servitude but not applying to the slavery portion of the 13th Amendment. All of that goes out the window when you go straight to Black's Law Dictionary and you look at many cases. I mean, there are so many cases that you can read through that actually give this same definition. There's no distinction between slavery and involuntary servitude. That's great stuff, uh, yourself, and it's very simple. It, it's, we're not talking about, oh, man, if we were doing math, we're not talking about, you know, any kind of complex mathematics. It's mathematics involved, no, no. and that's the number it's of bodies that you put. differential equations, man. We're talking one plus one equals two. Right, it's Probably simple. the first equation we've all learned. Now, or zero plus one equals one. <laughs> Yeah. So the very first, the very first applications of mathematics we all learn. Right. So I also want to bring Otis in and uh, get his 
his opinion on this. I don't even know if I want to call it the debate because this case closed. I'm closing the Black Laws book right now, and that's the end of the debate on defining slavery. And that's a very broad definition. And, you know, uh, there is a lot of mainstream support and recognition for slavery that has already been outlawed, meaning that if I went to the mall and kidnapped somebody, um, and then brought them to my location and I held them captive on the property for, we've seen the news stories. The man had the three girls in Ohio, uh, which is actually, uh, Ohio is one of our, uh, um, uh, states that we'll be reporting news from here in just a bit when we get to our news, uh, uh, segment, but that's already outlawed. That man would was prosecuted. He was arrested. He was a, he was a prosecuted. These people that, uh, dealing human trafficking where they're smuggling people over the border and then employing them in factories and, and what have you chicken farms wherever and hold them you know against their will and control their movement and, and rely you know what I'm saying that falls under that black law dictionary that you just gave so there's many different forms of slavery um, but what this program has always focused the most on we've never tried to deny that that's slavery or saying that that's not a worthy cause. Don't fall for that. Don't be concerned about that. You know, the whole black and missing. Where you think those missing children, men and women are ending up? I don't think they're all dead. I think they're being held somewhere in slavery. You know, until until they're found. But that kind of slavery is already illegal. And it, if we catch people who are doing that, you know, they can be prosecuted by the law. But the law also says, and that's the 13th Amendment, I mean, if we're going to talk about Black's law, let's go to the Supreme Law. And what does the Supreme 13th Amendment say? How does it define slavery? It defines it as a function of the court, a determination to be made by the court. We know enforcing what? Laws. The legislative law, that's criminal code through through the courts and, and then, you know, the administrative portion of it, where are we sending these commodified bodies and what have you. So, I, I, I mean, it all applies, but even I was thinking as you was reading those definitions that even outside, we need to extend it beyond. And I'm sure Max has brought this up, being that, you know, he's had several... Uh, several of his children uh, trapped in the system some kind of way. Uh, his son that's living right. with him now is on probation. Well, he couldn't come to Washington, D.C. for the marching rally. Why? Because he was under the control, still under the control of the state. So even though he's outside the prison, he's still, by Black's law, enslaved. Would you agree uh, exactly. with that, Otis? Exactly. Otis, would oh, you, what, what yes, would you say, Otis? Without a doubt, he he's not in the cage, but his his movements, what he what he can interact with, whether or not he can leave beyond a certain jurisdiction, all of that is controlled. And, and the, the sad part about it is, it can be held over his head, not not necessarily by an employer, but anyone that's savvy enough to know what his condition is can actually use it to hover over his head. It doesn't matter whether it's a social engagement or whatever. That's the bad yeah. part about it. Absolutely. Yes. And, and and the part that I keep bringing up all the time, I tell you, ironically, I'm going to go through it rather quickly. I tell you, to me, 
coming in contact with you and Max five years ago is a shocker to me because I keep telling you every time I have a chance to come on this program, I'm literally about a mile and a half away from the building that housed the library that I first had this conversation with with a librarian named Mrs. Morgan. I was 10 years old in the fifth grade the first time I literally had an argument with an adult over this passage. And then I look up five years later and I'm on the, on listening to you and Max and I bring up the conversation. When I called in, I said to your show, I told Max about the book from Michelle Alexander having an autograph and Max went off on me. And I had to stop and look at it and say, you know what, he's right. There's no need of being offended. It's not mass incarceration, it's slavery. Absolutely, yeah. and, and and once I once I saw that, it was no problem with me. I, as a matter of fact, I've even sent messages to Michelle Alexander and several uh, professors that I see on Twitter and stuff. Like, there's a conference coming up here at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, where the thing was just going. Black professors that have written books, the cost of a pound of flesh, and all of this, but they still insist on saying slavery was abolished. There's no way you can look at the 47 words and come up with a, a conclusion that slavery was ever legally ended. It was changed from private to a residence of the government. Government can do it. And it doesn't have to be uh, fairly convicted, just duly convicted, which means we go through the procedures, we find you guilty. You don't really have to be guilty of the crime. We just have to duly go through the process. So that in itself was another switch. You did whether you're guilty or not doesn't matter. Whether you're really innocent doesn't matter. Once you've gone through that process, you are a slave until somebody finds a way to get you out of that system. Absolutely. You know, uh you just touched on uh, two two other aspects of the debate or whatever we want to call it, the discussion that was going on. Is the physical, is, is slavery limited to the physical confinement? And then the other question was, is it because of the labor? Is it the labor aspect of the confinement that makes it slavery? You know, and again, all of these are just elements of it. And also, I have to correct myself when I mentioned about Black's Law, mentioned that it was written by uh, Justice Hugo Black. I was caught up in a conversation earlier because Justice Hugo Black, former Supreme Court Justice, he was a KKK member. And, you know, they knew that at the time that FDR appointed him and he still got seated on the bench. But he didn't write the Black's Law Dictionary. That was written by Henry Campbell Black. Just for anyone that's listening or someone that reviews it later, just so they don't go off on me for misspeaking on that. I have to correct myself on that. Okay. And, you know, another thing that I wanted to mention, it is this case that I'm really following right now because uh, we, we, we have, you know, one of the things that we're going to eventually do, you know, and I see it coming in the near future, is to bring this really into the light, is we're going to have to start filing litigation within the courts. I mean, we've seen how other movements have progressed. You know, if we look at even the civil rights movement, besides doing the marching and sit-ins, they were also going through the legal processes or processes. 
through the courts. You could say the same thing with the, uh, what is it, LGBT, LG, LBGT. I always get the letters mixed up, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. They actually, but, while but they were sell, doing but, their but marches and everything, they were also going through the legal process. But you said yourself uh yes. sorry to interrupt you but aren't isn't that an element of the abolitionists um already going through the courts and filing lawsuits now i know it's just dealing with the geo group right now and they're uh, again featured in our news story in our news lineups which we'll be getting to at the uh half hour mark we'll transition to that mm-hmm. seg- to that segment but uh you know the uh, immigrants attorneys filed that lawsuit uh challenging and calling Absolutely. it slavery in that federal and, lawsuit and inciting that's, federal that's, code right you're you're absolutely right that's one of the angles there's another angle that you know and i i found it in a really unique case uh for anyone familiar with SeaWorld in uh San Diego, California, they have these five uh orcas there. And PETA actually brought a lawsuit against SeaWorld on behalf of these five orcas saying that they were being enslaved based on the thirteenth based on their legal interpretation of the thirteenth amendment. This this case uh I believe it was uh twenty twelve, twenty eleven or twenty twelve. It was, uh, yeah, February of 2012, this case was filed. You know, it's the name of the five orcas, Silicon, Katina, Corky, Kasatka, and Ulysses, against uh, SeaWorld. And everything that we need to do a mass class action against the United States and against the various... uh, uh, wardens and prison systems is right within this case. And I want to just point out something that was mentioned within the slaughterhouse cases. That's something very important from 1872. I suggest people go read that called the slaughterhouse cases. Simple Google search, all kinds of information will come up on it. So the first thing that they were looking at is was it just limited to people of African descent on that? And the court said, while New was in the mind of Congress when it proposed the 13th article, it forbids any other kind of slavery now or hereafter. If Mexican peonage in the Chinese coolie labor system shall develop slavery of the Mexican or Chinese race within our territory, this amendment may safely be trusted to make it void. But here's what they went on to say. The undoubted aim of the 13th Amendment was not merely to end slavery, but to maintain a system of completely free and voluntary labor throughout the United States. And that's from a case called Pollock versus Williams in 1944. So the courts already know what the, what the intention was, that it wasn't to, to end slavery. It was to maintain a system of completely free and voluntary labor throughout the United States. It can't get any clearer than that. You know that this is even what the courts are saying. This I mean, there's an abundance ninth, of evidence. Yeah, once you've done the research, Sorry? once you've done the research, there's just so much precedence 
and uh, abundance of evidence. We're just talking about some of that evidence about the Civil War on the Tando radio show that the Civil War was about mm-hmm. slavery. You know, um, uh, as uh, Max mentioned in his speech at the D.C. rally, the Lincoln and Stevens letters and, and what oh, have you. And, and so just, it's just so much evidence when you do the research. Yeah, it's it's all right there. And so for anyone who still has their doubts and, you know, as as we hear Max and you and I've been saying it for a long time, bring the counter argument. Bring the counter argument. We can show the first thing that I'm going to tell a person is look at the 13th Amendment and then come with your counter argument. And some are going to bring up the Emancipation Proclamation but, you know, thanks to our great ancestor, Frederick Douglass, he already broke that down for us of how it was a stupendous fraud. So we don't even have to do the work on that. It's already been done for us. You know, so we're just waiting for that counter-argument to come where a person is saying, well, no, based on this case or based on this amendment, based on this law, that it's not slavery what's being done. But no one has that counter-argument. Some of the counter arguments that I have encountered over the years from comments left on some of the media that I produce, abolitionist media that I produce, but someone will say, well, they're criminals. These are criminals. Um, Therefore, it's not slavery. They shouldn't have broke the law. And I mean, that is such a anti-intellectual argument. I don't even bother to respond to those type of people because it sounds like a talking point. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's like you're not even acknowledging wrongful convictions. So I, I mean, what, what's the point of me even talking to you? And then the right. things that they have criminalized. You talk about freedom and liberty and all this kind of stuff. Then tell me why people should have their liberty and freedom taken away from them for using a plant like cannabis. Right. What Nixon said what the, the drug the war was about. So-called ratified the 13th Amendment. The first thing they did was change the criminal code. Because if slavery is legal to, you know, through criminal convictions, then you have to change what the laws are. So the first thing that they did was make vagrancy a crime. What is vagrancy? Being homeless and having no money. Well, that's everyone that just got released from slavery, from the plantation. They're all vagrants now. So you can turn around and lock them right back up. Also, also, yeah, and and falling into that, also you had to prove that you had employment. You know, a check stub or something I remember uh, reading about. And then that made those formerly enslaved uh, um, victims susceptible to now what they call in labor exploitation. Now they got to accept abuse on a job just to have a job. They got to accept unequal pay just to have a job because so that they can produce. You might as well call, call that check stub freedom papers in that context. Yeah, that's exactly what it was because, I mean, you look at the sharecroppers. I mean, sharecroppers did a lot of the work on the plantations without actually getting paid, you know, because it was always some excuses that the landowner had for not paying. And 
the person could really do nothing about it because, you know, it was still on the books that blacks could not sue whites. You know, so there was, there was no uh, remedy for them but to just keep doing the work because it was the only way that they could, quote, unquote, remain free, if you want to call that freedom. So, uh, you guys got to get... Well, let, let, let me take this opportunity, uh, Brother Yousef, to invite any of our listeners as we get ready to transition to some of our news segments to uh, give us a call if you got that kind of argument or if you have evidence that, to share to show that slavery was never abolished as if we need any more evidence. Give us a call at 866 9025. That's toll free 866-510-9025. You can also check us out at uberconference.com slash black talk radio network. You can um, type in the chat if you have a question or comment, if you're shy and what have you, or you're unable to speak uh, for whatever reason, you could type your message in there. You can also find more toll free uh, international numbers, uh, even for the continent of Africa. So uh, definitely, um, like I will, one of the stories will point out, like I pointed out in the intro, Max will be going to Ghana, him in tribal reign soon, uh, because abolitionism is an international movement. This is slavery is being recognized globally. And so it is up to us to organize to to defeat it. And there's always been resistance. We just haven't always called it slavery. So the first story is actually some good news. But I'm going to play this clip of Attorney General Jeff Sessions about him signing a memo which reversed Obama-era order orders that sought to limit the use of private prisons. Again, I've given my opinion on the timing of that. If he'd have done, if if the Obama administration had introduced those orders uh, at the beginning of his second term, we wouldn't even be talking about private prisons today because they would have been went out of business. But because he waited a few months uh, before the end of his term, they had time to hang on until Donald Trump got elected or, or Hillary Clinton because I would not trust her to end private prisons even though she said she would because she was still taking money from the private prison lobbyists. So right now though, private prisons is it's good if you if you went to the private prisons if you are a slaver um because we do talk a lot about the government and state control of these bodies well if you can if you're a stockholder in one of these corporations then i mean you're a private slaver in my opinion you're a private slaver so Absolutely. that's that's in full effect Absolutely. so i'm gonna play this clip but Following this clip, we're going to talk about some good news out of Ohio. All right, so let me go ahead and cue this up. Making a comeback in the Trump administration. Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a memo saying he would roll back the Obama administration's policy of whittling down the number of prisons run by companies instead of the government. The move isn't a surprising one. The day after Trump's victory, stock prices for prison companies skyrocketed, one by more than 40%. In the U.S., three companies have 12 different contracts with the Department of Justice to hold more than 21,000 inmates. The Obama administration wanted to phase out those facilities. 
Advocates say corporately owned prisons make incarceration more cost effective, saving thousands of dollars per inmate per year. Opponents say those savings come at a cost. They accuse prison companies of cutting corners to protect profits at the expense of inmates. The ACLU called privatized prisons, quote, a recipe for abuse and neglect. The U.S. Inspector General found that private prisons had higher rates of assault on inmates and prison staff, and more contraband items were found there. How about this, ACLU? How about we just call it slavery, okay? It's one word. It's a very simple word. It's simply defined that we we should be able to all agree on. Um, a long-standing definition of slavery. So just call private prison slavery. Just call it what it is. Um, so I, we said that I wanted to report some good news. This is some news uh, um, that yourself actually wanted to share with the listeners tonight. And this comes to you from Cincinnati.com. It says that Cincinnati's pension system has at least $2.5 million invested in a company connected with private prisons. And some city leaders said that money should not support an immoral system. Councilman P.G. Sittenfeld, with support from at least four other council members, a majority, proposed a policy Wednesday asking the city's pension board to divest from any companies doing business in private prisons. The city joins a national debate over private prisons. Backers of such prisons say they can save money and help an overcrowded system. Critics say private prisons place profit ahead of rehabilitation. Well, I don't know anybody that's into rehabilitation. Um, um, But anyway, it goes on to say, if you want a glimpse into a person or a city's values, then follow the money Sittenfeld said. And the money that flows into the private prison business is a stain on our community. Mayor John Cranley and the challenger for his seat, Yvette Sensum, said at the press conference they support the motion. They were joined by former Ohio Governor Ted Strickland, Ohio Civil Service Union President Chris Mobby, and representatives from the Ohio ACLU, Ohio Justice and Policy Center, and the Cincinnati NAACP. Mabe, with nearly 30 years of corrections experience called the privatization of prisons in the country an unholy cause. We have a moral compass in the Department of Corrections about right and wrong. We have a job of rehabilitation, not reincarceration for profits, he said. Respond to the taxpayers, the families of the citizens of the states, not a board of directors. Sinfeld said his research prompted by New York City's similar divestment revealed a direct $2.5 million investment from the city's pension system in G4S. We've talked about this on New Abolitionist Radio, one of the, if not the largest employer on the continent of Africa. Uh, G4S is a London-based security company. Other indirect investments are found to support CoreCivic, which was formerly known as Correction Corporation of America, or CCA, and Geo Group, and other companies with connections to private prisons. As of, now this is key, as of December of 2016, the city's pension fund had a market value of assets of $2.22 billion. 
and I'll leave it there. And this story has been shared with you on BTR uh, Community, where you should get a membership so that you can help support independent uh, media, light new abolitionist radio, but uh, you don't have to have a membership to view these stories that have been posted under the title NAR Planning, August the 30th, 2017. Um, so, uh, Otis, Otis, what, what do you think about the uh, tool of divestment? And what do you think about this story in particular in Cincinnati? Well, I've I've been trying to figure out how to end that divestment. But I tell you, Scotty, I keep looking at it. It looks like to me more politicians and investment bankers and a lot of cities are still involved in this financing it with derivatives. I can't figure out how to get one group that can track all of it and stop it. You know, when it this this industry is like most, it's pretty savvy. You know, the Berkeley and a couple of other college campuses got learned. The people learned from apartheid. Once they found out that you could track them and public opinion could force them out of a market, they've really gotten good at hiding who owns what and who's invested in what. So I, I don't really know how we can be effective at cutting off that that avenue. You know, uh, it, in my opinion, it comes down to we need more abolitionists on the ground because anyone that works in a, in a world where you have like a 401k or 403b where, you know, your, you know portions of your paycheck are being invested, you know, they need to pay more attention into what their money is being invested in because the person, you know, I know when I worked in corporate America, we had our fidelity investments and everything. I can go in there and I can pick and choose what industries that uh, I wanted my money invested in. So you can actually call them up and ask them, you know, if it just says blue chip it says tech, you can call them up and say, well, what tech companies? So this is where the abolitionist has the information where it says, okay, I don't want them investing in this company or that company. And so once they have that information, this is when it comes to the whole group and we can start putting that pressure out there to say, look, this, this money, if you're using Charles Schwab or Fidelity or whoever it is, they need to stop investing in, you know, in, uh, Walmart or whoever at right, right, Amazon right. now, now that they've partnered with Whole Foods. You know, you, you know you yourself. Know, you know yourself. Mm-hmm. There are some some articles that uh, name some of these companies and these investment funds. I know during the campaign last year, uh, Black Talk Radio News, I was reporting. You, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, own pension fund. Uh, she was in five. I can't remember it now, but it. Uh, um, uh, Max was with us tonight. He will be able to name it. I, I forget the name of the particular fund. Five hundred fund. I forget the name of the investment firm she was going through. But you know, mm-hmm. um, um, there has been people who have been trying to document this, but the reason I wanted to chime in because you were in DC, but I don't think he, well, he was there in DC and I'm not sure if it was Robert King, but I think it was Albert Wood Fox in that interview with, um, uh, Jared Ball, 
where he said that him and Robert King, these are, you know, members of the Angola uh, three, uh, Herman Wallace, we lost a few years ago, but didn't he mention that they were going to start doing that to to start a project to track these companies' connections? Do y'all recall that? Yes, he did. Exactly. I do do recall that. Yeah, I do recall that. And it's necessary. It's necessary to start following the money because, I mean, all we have to do is look at what others have done. You know, most mainly if we want to look at how they went after all of those, you know, through the Holocaust, if you will. You know, how they tracked everyone down. They tracked all the banks. They tracked, you know, tracked all the investors. They track them down. You just, it's, it's easy to follow the money. Well, it's easy. The, I, I brought that subject up the last time, the last show when I was telling you, it's amazing to me how open they are about this stuff, talking about it in the public venue, because the, the uh, Attorney General is already mm-hmm. articles, there's several articles talking about his family members and wife actually buying prison stop prior to him right. making the announcement that they were going to roll back this Obama trend of going soft and we, we're going to and they gave, matter of fact I, I brought it up to Max saying I didn't think it was going to last long because Obama did it toward the end of his term and sure, sure enough as soon as, as Trump won one of the first things they said is we're not going to be cutting back on on prisons. We're going to build more, and we're going to we're going to get tough on crime. And that shocks that stock shot right back up. But the article came out saying that he his his wife had just purchased more stock in prisons several days before the announcement. So they're trading in in insider information. These are public officials. I think I remember right. that fund that Hillary Clinton, because it was either anonymous and it could have been WikiLeaks also published the information, had hacked her stuff, her her um, real financials, and not what she just released for the presidency. But it was it was the Vanguard 500 fund, oh, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, Vanguard Group. Yeah, Vanguard Group. So that was yeah. the investment yeah. firm. It just came. Uh, came came to me, but we let's go ahead and change gears and and take a look at our next story. So shout out to the council people of in Cincinnati. Let me just give my quick commentary on that. Uh, divestment is a good tool to end slavery. Starve them again. If if President Obama, CEO, former CEO of USA Inc. had introduced that federal policy. At the beginning of his second term, what was that, 2012, uh, private prisons wouldn't even exist today. So the people, it is on the people for us then to take the money out the system, you know, take the money out of these these investment funds like the Vanguard, where they're investing in companies that utilize prison slave labor. So we we have to keep spreading awareness about that because some people don't know until they know. And then once you know, right. then you make that decision on either you're going to be a slaver or you're going to divest from slavery. Okay. So the next story we want to jump to. Uh, now, I do need to do some more research on this, but I'm going to throw it out there. This doesn't seem to be 
a fake news site in terms of I don't see any disclaimer at the bottom or anywhere like that that this is satire and there was at least one other source but it wasn't a mainstream source that doesn't mean it's it's not true but this source is I would consider based off of what they call it patriots on the right.com is a right wing alt right whatever you want to call them um I don't want to use the R word because I haven't really investigated the site. And that's such an inflammatory word. We want to make sure we're using it correctly uh, based off of evidence. Mm -hmm. But they build themselves as the right wing. And we know typically the right wing supports slavery. And, of course, the policy of racism ensures that uh, uh, certain groups are targeted more than others. So, but this article talks about the Congressional Black Caucus introduces a bill demanding slavery reparations from America. Again, I'm giving this disclaimer. I still need a couple more sources. So, if y'all know about this or heard of it in other sources, then let us know. Let us know. But let me go ahead. It says the Charlottesville event was the main cause for Democrats to start an ongoing war with Donald Trump. See, already you know where this, these people are coming from on their uh, with their propaganda. This nation is currently facing racial tensions, among other problems, because Democrats want people to believe that Trump is a racist due to his response to the Charlottesville incident. At this point, the president cannot tolerate them anymore. Every single opinion or decision he has is attacked by the liberals. See, this is like that grade school uh, gang mentality, the liberals versus the lib. All that stuff is like chill, child's play. Um, Democrats, Republicans uh, all support slavery okay, uh, very few of them are on the record of being against slavery and support private prisons as well uh, except for those who supported the Justice is Not for Sale Act of I think that was 2015 or 2016 but anyway it goes on to say Democrats and members of the Congressional Black Caucus have now demanded that reparations be paid to black people as a result of slavery reports World Politicus, and that was the only other source I saw. Uh, yes, you read that right. After almost 100 years of saying nothing, there are now demands that we pay citizens of our own country. This is a slippery slope. So this is, this is again, people acting like 100 years was so long ago. 100 years is people that's living past 100 years, so it is people that's over 100 years today. So that's like two generations, one generation. It could be one generation. I mean, it's not it's not ancient history. It's not like, you know, uh, 2,000 years before Christ or something like We're not talking ancient right. history. Right. Okay. Well, all right. So, and, but also slavery was never abolished. So reparations, I would expand. This would be my counter argument to these people who are being deceptive and accusing black people of practicing racism. I would say today to your reparations, your, your anti-reparations argument that I am also for Hispanic victims of slavery, uh, poor whites, any victim of slavery. Shouldn't matter if they poor, middle class, sometimes rich people get set up too. But anyway, I, I don't, I don't think slavery it should be on any books as punishment for any kind of crime. So, you know, uh, uh, it just boils down to in modern day slavery and human trafficking, 
you can't even play that race car. Okay? Right. And so these people deserve reparations as well. It seems like the only element of slavery where you might get some reparations is if you get terribly maimed by the slave catchers and if you get killed by them, maybe your family might get some reparations. Okay? And, um, you know, sometimes people come out of slavery and prove that they were wrongfully convicted. Sometimes they might get reparations. But it's a whole lot of people, man. All of those people that have that are prisoners of politics, like Nixon's drug war, I say if they still alive, they deserve reparations too. So that's how I destroy your racist argument and trying to accuse black people of just worrying about black people um, but when slavery has never been abolished, and we've actually had that that conversation with our abolitionists who do fight for uh, reparations strictly f- as the descendants uh, of what's known as African Americans, descendants of enslaved Africans. Uh, with, and, and I and I agree with that they deserve reparations. But the argument, I mean, not the argument. But the agreement that we have come to with some of those activists right here on this program is that, yeah, slavery still exists. And we need to work on that, ending that. And we can work on reparations and laying the groundwork for that. But let's just make sure we recognize uh, modern day victims of slavery. And it's not just for some reparations for slavery past, but slavery present because it was never abolished. Uh, guys, I know I will want a, a little long there, but I toss it to to uh, uh, Otis and yourself. I yield to yourself. Go. Oh, I'm still here. I was I was just giving you the opportunity to go first. No, no, go right ahead. You know, I'm I'm totally in agreement with you. I mean. There's not much to add to that because you and I are waiting for the same thing. The counter argument, the opposition. What's the opposition? Other than some, you know, flawed logical fallacy or an ad hominem attack. Because that's usually what we get. Let's hear the counter argument. Because how can you repair something while it's still broken. And you could take that with anything. You have to fix the problem first before you can, you know, reparations is the same order as repair. So, and remedy. You can't remedy it until you've actually stopped it forever. So as long as slavery still exists, there can be no reparations unless they're going to be ongoing reparations, and I'm not settling for that. You know, so it has to be abolition first. That's number one on the list. I think we had a post about that recently. Abolition comes first. And it's kind of a mistake for those. If, If it is true, I mean, I understand why they're doing it, but they're leaving the loophole in there. Because the counter-arguments anyone trying to seek reparations for what didn't happen is how can we give you reparations when it still exists? I mean, maybe they're openly, well, they have openly admitted it on several occasions. You know, but then they start coming with all of the justifications about crime. 
you know, they've they've been able to criminalize, you know, you know, mainly, you know, blacks and Latinos in the country. And so that's usually the counter argument. The first thing you hear is the fallacy of black on black crime. You know, there's no such thing as black on black crime. We know that. You know, it's just crime. The person is not committing a black if a black person, you know, commits a crime against another black person, he's not doing it because he's black. That would be the definition of black on black crime. It's just crime. Whether it's robbery, whether it's, you know, an assault or anything of that nature, it's crime. If there's no such thing as white on white crime and or Asian on Asian crime or any other nationality versus that same nationality, then there's no such thing as black on black crime. It was part of criminalizing the race. So until we fix that, it's just another band-aid. That's all people have been doing all these years, just keep trying to put band-aids on things, keep putting band-aids. Can't put a band-aid, you know, on a, on a, on a severed artery or on a bullet hole, as the saying goes. This is a severed artery that needs some serious surgery, and it's not going to be fixed with just band-aids. I toss it to Otis. Otis, you with us? Did I get disconnected? No, you're still on yourself. Otis, I think, uh, Otis forgets to unmute himself. Uh, yeah, Otis, I was trying there? to get to it. Unmute me, Scotty. There you go. Yeah, right. you're on. Yes, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like I said, I'm looking at the whole situation. I tell Scotty them all the time. I, I don't understand when I have the discussion why so many people get to the part, well, you should have never gone to jail. And it's, wait, wait don't you understand that police departments say you can look all over the South, primarily the the largest part of all of the press. You're targeted in a minority neighborhood. That's where the policing is done. It's pretty easy to quote get caught by the police when the police are actually setting up shop in the one or two exits in and out of your neighborhood. It just makes sense. <laughs> They're not policing in other neighborhoods the very same way. And and the whole idea behind uh, driving while black or whatever, I hate to get into personal stuff, but I used to drive back and forth from Dallas to Virginia for over 15 years. And I knew that 1,498 miles, I mean, I, I did it like clockwork for about 15 or 16 years. And it was nothing for me to be stopped. And I could make it in 24 to 28 hours if I didn't have a problem. If I went over that 28 hours, you best believe I was stopped somewhere for why are you out here at night? Why is your truck loaded? Where are you headed? Because I had no right to drive on a public street. <laughs> it's just that simple. Being a black guy, and I mean, it got to the point that I had the pouch sitting with everything over my steering wheel, put in extra lights so that when they walk up to the cab, I turn the light on and all the light is coming out of my cab, shining down on the ground because I got tired of having guns stuck in my face. So I don't have much patience when people tell me, oh, it's something you did wrong. No, it's a system designed to snare you. (laughs) 
I mean, I never called the slave catchers until I started listening to Scotty and, and Matt. But that's exactly mm-hmm. how you feel. You cannot travel this interstate highway as a black man at any hour of the night without expecting to be harassed. You know, it's just the way the system is designed. You know, and, and um, I don't, I don't know how to get the money out of it because you can't get people to understand. You don't have to do anything to be caught up in the system except be in the wrong place. Look, before we go to um, the break, since we're at the top of the hour, let people know you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. The telephone number. To join the conversation at any time is 866-510-9025. That's 866-510-9025. Just hit star star to unmute yourself. I'll see you on the board and I will call out your area code or your name if you enter one. Um, so um, let me bring up this this example. Um, now, I don't know if this was Greg's intention. I'm talking about Mr. Greg Jacoy of the South Carolina Green Party who was part of the Carolina uh, abolitionist contingent that traveled to D.C. And again, thank you to all those who sponsored um, the trip. Greg is a white man. Uh, I'm not sure Greg's age, if he's in his 50s. I think he's still in his 50s. Um, But Greg is a white man. Now, I don't know if driving while black was on his mind and that's why he volunteered to drive us from uh, Mount Holly, North Carolina, because Max and Tribal uh, drove the rental to my house here in Mount Holly, and then Greg met us here because he's not that far from me right there in um, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, so he's closer to me than Max. So since it's going along the way towards D.C., everybody met up here, and so Greg could leave his, his van here, and so uh, he volunteered to drive all the way up there, man, and then even when we was in D.C., he was driving everybody around. He was like our own personal Uber. It, it, you know what I'm saying? And I observed while in D.C., black people being stopped for walking while black. And unfortunately, and, and if Greg's listening, and, and if he recalls this incident when we was trying to find parking, and we parked on the side on the corner right up the street around that corner where that restaurant was, and we and so we're there and we're watching uh these undercover they were in an unmarked car and they weren't wearing uniforms uh had this guy in handcuffs right there and and I, I believe well I've seen so many interactions well I'm not gonna say so many but I saw like two or three interactions while I was in there in DC now think about here we are in a rental which if I remember correctly may have had South Carolina place on it it may have had North Carolina place I'm not even sure of the place but you're in D.C. and out of state okay with out of state place and you're driving while black well what are they going to assume oh drug trade or something like that you know these are couriers or what are they doing here what's their business here in D.C. and they profile you and so I believe that the reason why we would the event for our experience during the event was so event uh um so problem free was i think because uh we had a white man driving us around i mean what do you think you sell <laughs> you know <laughs> 
you know, I can't really say what I, what I really, really want to say <laughs> <laughs> over these airways just from, you know, some things of the past. But, you know, I know how I feel when I go in certain areas when I'm with, you know, another, with a white person in the car, well, the, especially if they're driving, you know, going through certain areas. I always feel as though people are looking at me as if I have this person at gunpoint driving me. There's that and side. All of it. Me. There's that you know, flip because, side, yeah. Yeah, through, I mean, through, through experiences, you start recognizing or you start understanding the nature of people's thoughts, what goes through their minds. Because mm. for some reason, it must be unnatural for a white man to be driving and a black person as a passenger. But I'm so light-skinned it yourself, you know, from, from a distance, they probably thinking, I'm, oh, that's another white person or... Or, you know. nah, nah. <laughs> hey, but hey, we do got to take a break. Otis wanted to chime in real quickly before we go to break. I was, I was, I was all the way across Lafayette Park looking at you, brother. <laughs> I'm, I'm just joking, man. I'm just, I'm just joking. Otis, what did you want to say before nice we go to break? Try. That was a nice shot, Otis. <laughs> oh no, man. I, I'm 64. I have tails. As a matter of fact, one of the guys who follows this show a little bit and you probably have seen him on on Facebook Scotty a, a, the guy by the name of James Torres he and I have been friends since Air Force days 40 years we have our stories he's white and I'm black quite naturally we have our stories of traveling across this country it would amuse you man only because we mm-hmm. survived them but uh, you know it's really not funny <laughs> you know I don't want to eat a time with it but I mean this this country has been doing this for a long time. As a matter of fact, he is, as a white guy, he was shocked 40 years ago when it first he first encountered it in Phoenix City, Alabama. He almost got a shot in, 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 in driving in a sports car. And one of these days, I get to tell you that story. But since that incident, it's what woke his eyes to, no, you can't give me your idea what I should have done not to be in trouble. I was black. And somebody with power stopped me. And I was minutes away from either being dead or being enslaved. If everything wasn't... As a matter of fact, during that time, I was military. So that was the biggest thing that could save you. Is you could pull out that military ID and say, Hey, call my current commander. The, the information's on the back of the call. <laughs> you know? Hey, they definitely talk about uh, military stories. That definitely saved me from a being in slavery when I was stationed in Arizona and the Gulf War was about to start. So I did exactly what you said, Otis, but oh, yeah. you're listening okay. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be back on the other side.
in 2008, the Black Talk Media Project launched the digital radio platform, Black Talk Radio Network, the first such platform created to serve the black community specifically. Black Talk Radio Network has grown with a variety of radio hosts, digital radio stations, and podcasters. Web analytics say Black Talk Radio, the platform, has an online reach that ranks it among the top independent black media platforms in the world. All of this is possible because of financial contributions to the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. If you love the work we do and the voices and perspectives we bring to you every day, make a donation today to ensure that Black Talk Radio is here in the future. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, uh, hosted by yours truly, Scotty Reed. We're joined on the line, uh, co-hosting, sitting in for Max Parthis, who's on vacation right now. I don't know if you really can call that a vacation. He's still putting in work. But a vacation from the airwaves on New Abolitionist Radio. But we're, uh, we have filling in for that space. We got Yusef Hassan and we got Otis Griffin, new abolitionist, part of this new abolitionist movement, an international movement to abolish slavery. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, many of these stories represent the tentacles of slavery. Again, you know, sometimes metaphors are appropriate, but this metaphor of mass incarceration we had to kill that. We had to use the most accurate language. And the most accurate language, when you're talking about systems, a system of control, hey, that all is in the definition of the word slavery. So let's call it what it is. It's slavery. And an uh, element, one of the avenues or forms of enslavement that is big in this country and really blew up uh, after the installment of Donald J. Trump, DJ Trump, as I call him sometimes, private a private prison uh, is demanding New Mexico and the federal government find 300 more prisoners in 60 days or it will close. Let me say that to you again. We got a private entity with stockholders who are running a prison who are demanding that New Mexico and the federal government, USA Inc., find 300 more prisoners in 60 days or it will close. You know what that headline says? They're saying um, you need to t- uh, give your slave catchers some overtime. Now, we've reported over the five years we've been on air the different contracts like Core Civic, formerly CCA, and the GO Group. Uh, state of Louisiana comes to mind. Sign these contracts when they privatize the prisons in these states and when they draw up the contract that your state, that you, these representatives in your name saying they represent the people of that state, when they sign this contract, those contracts uh, say, that it often say 90% occupancy rate guaranteed. Guaranteed. Seems like I'm hearing Max in my mind on Rewind of new abolitionist radio saying a 100%. Some of those, you know, depending upon the company. So think about that. Think about that. That's a quota. You can call it a quota. 
a quota for what? Slaves. And I don't mean to use that word in a dehumanizing term, but sometimes, you know, for people who are in denial about what's in front of them, we have to use the language which is most simple to convey what we're trying to say. In slavery or slave conveys that, but no disrespect to the victims of slavery. So the nations, this is was originally appeared on alternate uh, another story from uh, uh, Brother Youssef. It appeared on Alternate, but it was published again earlier this month on Salon.com. says, the nation's second largest private prison corporation is holding New Mexico politicians hostage by threatening to close unless the state or federal authorities find 300 more prisoners to be warehoused there, according to local news reports. The company that has operated a private prison in Anastasia, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, for nearly three decades has announced it will close the Torrance County Detention Facility and lay off more than 200 employees unless it can find 300 state or federal inmates to fill empty beds within the next 60 days. The Santa Fe New New Mexican newspaper reported last week. The paper said the county officials issued a statement citing the threatened closure and emphasized that every virtually, uh, excuse me, every politician in the region or in the county to state officials to congressmen were scurrying to save those jobs as opposed to shutting a privatized prison by an operator that has been sued many times for sexual harassment, sexual assault, deaths, use of force, physical assaults, lack of medical care uh, uh, in, uh, for injuries and civil rights violations. Does that sound like slavery to y'all? Does that sound like what might occur on a plantation pre-1865? That, that's what it sounds like to me, that, that all of those elements are there. Okay? And so, um, you said, uh, go ahead, Otis. It sounds like to me that the politicians and public officials that they're threatening have more invested in that system than the 200 workers that will be laid off. That's the part that's hard to figure out. That's not hard to figure out to me. You can't tell me a, what, 300-bed facility or a facility that needs 300 more people in 60 days that automatically is trafficking in bodies because the facility is there, the people are still working, so unless its profits margins are going down, why would it need 300 more people? It needs 300 more people because those bodies are money. Right. They provide <laughs> jobs. It's the slave economy. Exactly. It's the exactly. slave economy. Well, they, presi- they provide the 300 bodies will provide enough profit for them to continually make their quarterly mark. Right, if right, it was right. It, it'll continue prison, to make would profits. Would it matter if it was 300? There you go. Profits profit. for the stockholders and be able to warrant the cost of the staff. Exactly, exactly. Well, they, the thing is, they get their share of write-offs and stuff when they come into these places. When they go into small towns like this, they're not paying full rate on, on any kind of property taxes. Well, Geo Group is uh, Geo Group and Core Civic are registered as real estate companies and taking advantage of real estate laws that allow them to uh, b- uh, operate tax-free. 
So oh, yeah, that's the exactly only ones paying taxes is those taxpayers, those 300 jobs. See, that res- represents taxes for the local right. economy as well. So, but the company, the stockholders aren't paying any ta- taxes. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Those three, those two or 300 people that are employed, they're paying their FICA and all that stuff and they're putting money back into the community. But the, the prison itself, it's sucking everything dry. Everything from utilities to the security around it, the infrastructure to make it, all of that is write off to a corporation. Had nothing to do with enhancing the life of the people there in that town. Yourself, did you have any thoughts on this? Oh yeah, yeah. So you have all of these companies or I say these prisons, you know, take uh New York for example, New York, you know, when I when I was uh, caught up in the system back in the in the mid '80s, New York had 72 prisons. Now New York has about 130 prisons. So that shows how much it's grown just in the course of 30 years, you know. And you have a lot of these little small towns where the only economy in the town is the jail. Everyone in the town works in the jail, whether as a guard or as a teacher, or they work in one of the shops. They're, they're the instructor in the shop. This is this is this is their economy. I want to read. This ties into you know because when I when I found the article, it, it automatically made me think of something that I heard in a, a core civic shareholder report, where this is this is what they say. They said the demand of our facilities and services could be adversely affected by the relaxation of enforcement efforts, leniency and conviction, or parole standards and sentencing practices, or through the decriminalization of certain activities that are currently prescribed by our criminal laws. For instance, any changes with respect to drugs and controlled substances or illegal immigration could affect the number of persons arrested, convicted, and sentencing thereby reducing demand for correctional facilities to house them. So, you know, that's, that's what they're concerned with. And we can look at how much money they're putting into, into lobbying to keep, to keep all of these contracts going. Between 2002 and 2012, CoreCivic GEO Group and another company that's big out there, Management and Training Corporation, spent $45 million in lobbying state and federal government. They also spent several million every year into, into election campaign contributions. Core Civic alone between 2003 and 2011 had 199 lobbyists in 32 states, while GEO has 77 in 17 states. Now, when we look at this article, you know, Couple of two words really jumped out of the article at me. One was hostage, and the other was warehouse. You know, so we have th- these companies strong arming. You know, these these uh these governments into warehousing, and we know you take companies like CoreCivic and GEO Group, as, as Scotty just mentioned, they're what are called real estate investment trusts. That's what they're listed as. They're not listed as private prison companies. They're listed as real estate. And so you know what real estate is. It's property. And so when you look at, when you hear the word warehousing, well, what's in a warehouse? 
just property. Just items, items for sale. And in this case, it's human bodies and the labor that they produce that's for sale. And so, going back to these economies, you have all these people where they actually pressure their local governments to get jails built. You know, there was a meme that I posted, you know, last year, I believe, that between, I don't recall the, it accurate. take me real, one second to pull it up. Be, between, give me a second, just be patient with me one second. That's taking too long. But I believe it was between 1980 and 2011, there were 22 prisons built in California and only one college. So to show where the priorities are, as we know from all of the statistics, you know, we can, we can spit out the numbers left and right as to how much it costs to incarcerate a person, how much money it generates as opposed to how much it costs to educate. So it's far more beneficial for them to incarcerate than it is for them to educate. And you have these companies where they have to answer to their shareholders, CoreCivic, GEO Group, G4S, MTC. They have to answer to their shareholders who are only concerned with the bottom line. You know, how much am I, what's my, what's my return on investment? If I'm investing X amount of dollars, I'm expecting to get this much back, multiplied by this percentage. So that's what they're concerned with. So you have these jails, and they're telling them, look, we're holding you hostage. We're going to shut down. That means, you know, you three, 400 people in this little town that has a population of 1,500 people, you're getting ready to have, you know, a third of your population getting ready to be unemployed if y'all don't fill these jails up. And so you know what that what what happens from there. That's like conquering you know divide. You know what I'm saying? That's like conquering divide. And I think this represents the future. When I hear people talking about FEMA camps and and you know on proper networks and and people try to say that they conspiracy theorists and what have you. But I'm what what I try to say is it's already happening. They know they ain't called right. FEMA camps. They call core civic. They call geo group. Whatever the name of the facility is, <laughs> slavery is happening right now. Go ahead, Otis. I, I agree with you 100. percent I've been saying this, Scotty. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, well, my son's 24, so actually about 30 years ago, I was driving all over Texas selling gold jewelry I was getting from from uh, New York and stopping in these mom and pop places and I'm telling you then that's when I started seeing a proliferation of these small uh, work camps and and uh, jails go, private prisons going up I didn't know at the time that it was a national thing but I'm telling you I, I could start understanding what was going on that is, like you said, that that there's no need for FEMA camps. They're locking people away in places that your taxpayer money is paying somewhere between what ninety to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate somebody. I see why investor groups are worried about their money. 
they're making that's they're making money faster than the regular stock market when they invest in that. I mean, let's face it: if you're talking a half a million people locked up in a place and it's average ninety thousand to one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year on average to house them, that's a lot of money. Yes, it is, Otis. Now I want to uh, transition. Um, as we got about six minutes till we take our ne next station identification break. And if we need to run a little past um, um, the top of the hour, normally Mind, Body, and Spirit radio would come on at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern, uh, which is 9 Central. But again, our prayers remain with uh, the host of that radio show who are in Houston. They are still in their homes without power, still have communication phone communication and but they're dry they're on dry land and let's pray that it remains that way uh but if you want more information about that tune in to tando radio shows podcast which be posted later but i want to transition um still talking about the profit that's being made through uh private prisons um this article which comes to you from billmoyers.com it's titled, A Federal Judge Jailed Hundreds of Immigrants While Her Husband Invested in Private Prisons. Judge Linda Reed's husband bought more prison stock five days before one of the nation's biggest immigration raid. Do you think there was some insider trading? That sounds like insider trading. I wonder if this judge Absolutely. knew about a raid coming up. And and said, hey, they gonna need to put these bodies somewhere. Hey, I would increase the stock after this news. The stock price gonna go. Oh man, you don't think they be having a, that sort of pillow talk? Don't tell me they not. No, absolutely. So so absolutely. Um, this is a post. Um, Bill says the post originally appeared at Mother's Jones, but this was published today. Uh, it was almost lunchtime inside the country's largest kosher slaughterhouse in Pottsville, Iowa, on May the 12th, 2008. The meat packers, mostly migrants from Guatemala and Mexico, wore earplugs to block out the noise of the machinery and couldn't hear the two black helicopters hovering overhead or the hundreds of armed federal immigration agents closing in around them until the production line stopped. One worker tried to flee with his knife, stabbing himself in the leg when he was pushed to the ground. They rounded us they rounded us up toward the middle like a bunch of chickens, a 42-year-old Guatemalan worker later recalled. Those who were hiding, hiding were beat, beaten and shackled. Sound like a slave catching the meat. Uh, nearly 400 mm -hmm. workers were arrested in the bus, which cost $5 million. Damn, them slave catchers. That slave catching is expensive, ain't it? Uh, it cost $5 million and was then the biggest workplace immigration raid in U.S. history. Now, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think they said this was in 2008, and, and, and uh, Obama was really tough on immigration that, you know, these birthers and people like Donald Trump don't want to give him credit for. All right. So, I mean, oh, absolutely. yeah, exactly. So, so it goes on to say, um, they were driven to the national cattle Congress. Oh, wow. What is this? Yeah. A fair keep, cattle, keep that cattle, keep that rounded them up like cattle. <laughs> A fairground in Waterloo where several federal judges would handle their cases over nine business days. So they drove them to a cattle herding place 
and brought the judges mm-hmm. in. They didn't take them to court. Mm-hmm. They they brought right. the judge. They brought these are federal judges, people. This ain't That's this right. ain't right. no little county. These aren't state judges. That these are, is the Department of Justice. The, wow, the, the Eric Holder at the time. Right. So here is where hell in trailers and a dance hall. Cots were set up for the defendants in a nearby gymnasium. At the time, undocumented immigrants caught in raids like this were usually charged with civil violations and then deported. But most of these defendants, shackled and dragging chains behind them, were charged with criminal fraud for using falsified work documents or social security numbers. About 270 people were sentenced to five months in federal prison in a process that one witness described as a judicial assembly line. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they went to, uh, like, Unicor, uh, whatever the private prison that USA Inc. owns and operates. But, again, the, you know, federal private prisons getting these federal contracts. So let's keep that in mind. Keep these uh, Mm -hmm. stories connected. So getting to uh, what this federal judge is accused of, uh, insider trading or passing on insider information is what the, the article seems to be insinuating. But it says overseeing the process was Judge Linda R. Reed. Uh, her last name is spelled R-E-A-D-E, okay? So no relation. The chief judge of the Northern District of Iowa, she defended the decision to turn a fairground into a courthouse, saying the proceedings were feared, fair and unhurried. I don't know. Uh, the incident sparked allegations of prosecutorial and judicial misconduct and led to congressional hearings. I don't remember these hearings. I, tell I don't you, either. CNN did a poor job. Uh, maybe we can look it up and find them on, on C-SPAN. But Eric uh, Kamid, a free ass, an interpreter who had worked at the Waterloo proceedings, testified that most of the Spanish-speaking defendants had been pressured to plead guilty. Representative Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat out of California, said the unconventional process seemed like a cattle auction, not a criminal prosecution in the United States of America. Uh, just say slave auction. Exactly. Uh, yeah, just say That's it. That's exactly it, what it Yeah, was. just say call slave auction. Is. Just call it what it is. Let's keep it simple. It was a slave auction. And, and we know chattel slavery, for those who say uh, chattel slavery, like it's the difference between what we, the slavery today and the slavery pre eighteen sixty five. That was chattel slavery. Like this is something different. No, it's not. It's not. And this is just more evidence to that point. Yet amid the national attention, one fact didn't make the news before and after the raid. Reed's husband owned stock in two private prison companies, and he bought additional prison stock five days before the raid according to Reed's financial disclosure forms ethics experts say these investments were inappropriate and may have violated the code of conduct for United States judges so um, you can read the rest of this story I'm going to post all of the stories that we plan to get to tonight that are posted in BTR community in one thread. I'm going to post that to our Facebook page for New Abolitionist Radio. Then you use that one link to get to all 
the stories max usually posts to every story to new abolitionist radio but that's how i'm going to do it tonight so uh, uh guys uh comments on on Got it. this i, I want to throw in when i when i call into y'all all the time this is what i keep trying to say you hear the magnitude of what you talked about in 2008 that's a federal judge you and I both know there's no way you could coordinate getting the fairgrounds, the food, the transportation, and all, all of this coordinated to run this show. What people don't realize is that judge also has friends of friends that own the fairground or provide the catering service. It's a multi-million dollar industry, and, and it's no accident that these people don't want to change the system because it's money. It's basically free money for them. They're getting government checks for doing nothing but stroking a pen and sending the money right on down the line in their sorority or fraternity friends that they've had for 40 years. That's not the kind of infrastructure most black people have, and we don't realize that's how they operate. That's right. <laughs> it's more money than meets the eye. You, sir? Do we need to take a break or are we going to keep going? Oh, my bad. You're doing my job for me. Thank you, yourself, for reminding me. It's okay, brother. It's all right, okay. all right. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. I do want to remind you, do want to remind you, BTR Community is a social media platform which was uh, created by the listeners of Black Talk Radio, this digital radio station, and we offer $24 a year subscriptions which help fund some of our social activities just like the abolitionist new abolitionist uh carolina contingent that went to washington dc part of those uh yearly subscriptions uh came due people renewed them and you know we was able to put that in the pot so this is how we can um you know fund our own movement and not rely on corporate funding or handouts from those who would control our message. Stay tuned. We'll be back on the other side again. That's BTR Community. Check it out online at btrcommunity.com. scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, you are listening to the broadcast, which is being conducted tonight on this August 30th, on this, in this year they call 2017, with Yousef, 
uh, Brother Yusef Hussain and Otis Griffin. All uh, both of these gentlemen are new abolitionists, well uh, researched, well read on the issue of modern day slavery and human trafficking. So if you want to try to counter anything that these gentlemen have to bring to the table in terms of information on whether or not slavery exists or how to define it, uh, you know, well, you know, I hope you're up to the challenge. I don't know. Uh, okay. So guys, do we have any other comments on that, on that uh, story about possible insider trading? Uh, I, you know, I said what I had to say about that pillow talk, but this is going on. This is just somebody who got caught or it got brought to light. Maybe somebody feels an ethics complaint. Um, but you got to realize that how many federal judges are they? And how many family members do they have that's invested in, in, you know, elements of modern day slavery and human trafficking? So did y'all have any final comments on that story? I mean, just briefly, I mean, you're really touching on it. It's just so commonplace. Like, this is like the norm. This is, this is an accepted norm that to have a federal judge, you know, we're not talking about, you know, some... Mayberry town in the middle of nowhere where we're talking about you know the judge being related to the prosecutor and they're also related to the chief of police and all of this stuff. We're talking about a federal judge and her husband. And it's blatant. They blatantly did it out in the open. So that so if that's that should be an indication that just like, you know, both of you are saying that this is all over the place. But this isn't it's really not even news. You know, it's almost accepted and expected behavior. And it's only because certain attorneys basically blew the whistle on them to say, look, this is what's going on. Because, you know, it's a lot of stuff that they mentioned in the article of how even when they, you know, see, when, 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 uh, when a, when a person comes through the system and they get to the point of having to be sentenced, you know, there, there are no pre-written scripts that they're really reading from. You know, the judge formulates the what he's saying based on the circumstances of the case. But as this article is, is alleging that they even had pre-written scripts. And, you know, it also touches on, you know, the forced... Uh, the forced uh, guilty pleas and all of that stuff. Like, everything was just already predetermined, set up already. So, yeah, you know, someone calls to whoever is in charge of the fairground, and that person probably got a kickback. But if they really, really dug up this thing, you know, they probably kickbacks to whoever owned the little dance hall, whoever owned, you know, the, the fairground, all of these things that... Literally, the, the article only mentions the judge and her husband, but many people, this money went through plenty of hands for this to go down. You know, yeah, bus you drivers, said, someone had to transport them there, you know, all of these things. Right. So you, this just scratches the surface. This is sort of like, let's give them this so they don't dig any further. Let's well, yeah. this news article. 
Yusef is hitting hitting the nail on the head, and I I, I learned this the hard way dealing with HUD projects. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. But uh, well, even if you if we were to to parse through what went on with them, I listened for key things. Like then they say the average person got five months. You can best believe when this thing was put together. They know exactly how many days a prisoner had to spend at what facility. If you're talking 200 and some people, I can guarantee you all of them didn't go to a federal place. Some of them, maybe 8 to 10, got housed in a little small community outside of here for 30 days, possibly got moved after 32 days that they can get the maximum money for them, get moved somewhere else for another seven days. There is a whole system. The computer has made it for these people to maximize their profit using those 200 people. The, the, from from housing them for that five-month period in a certain geographical location, then mm-hmm. transporting them to another area to be held for processing to go out of the country. I'm telling you, it's a multi-million dollar business. Absolutely. And someone has to feed them, someone has to clothe them. Yeah, people are making money hand over fist everywhere. Well, guys, before we move into our final uh, segment, we do have a YouTube clip that we would like to play. Uh, We played this this clip on it before, uh, but it's always worth playing it as many times as possible uh, when you have uh, slave catchers admitting to what they're a part of, what they're doing. And even though I don't think they still, even though they know something is wrong and what they're engaged in, uh, they still need to be educated on their language, that this is slavery, that slave catching what you're doing. It's not policing, really. I mean, technically, I mean, we want to look up the definition of policing. Yeah, we could apply that. But really, it's slavery. What's the motive? The motive is profit off of bodies, control of bodies. So, you know, policing is slave catching and controlling bodies. So um, this is a clip that Yusef wanted to share, and then we'll get his commentary uh, after uh, this clip. So let's go ahead and roll that. Tonight, truly explosive allegations in an I-Team exclusive interview. They're coming from police officers who are part of what's being called the NYPD 12. 12 cops who filed a class action lawsuit in federal court. They claim the NYPD is breaking the law by pressuring officers to meet quotas for arrests and summonses and punishing those who don't do it. Several of those officers sat down in our WNBC studios to talk with investigative reporter Sarah Wallace, and she joins us now. Sarah? Well, Chuck and Sabila, the police commissioner declined to be interviewed for this story, citing the officer's lawsuit. But he has repeatedly maintained that numerical quotas do not exist. A department spokesman said members are expected to do their jobs and that just like any other organization, there are performance standards through which employees are evaluated. the streets in certain New York City neighborhoods ask about police quotas for arrests and summonses, and this is what you often hear. There's a quota system. There always has been, and there always will be until someone changes it. Y'all see that? That's what they targeted. Take a seat right here, guys. Front row is set. These NYPD officers, all currently on the job, say it's true. They've all worked the streets, the subways, and patrolled housing developments. The department says there are no quotas. Well, I could tell you I'm a police officer. There are quotas in the NYPD. Are they lying? Absolutely. 
It's illegal for them to admit it. They come from different precincts, largely minority neighborhoods in Brooklyn or the Bronx, but their stories are remarkably similar. They tell you this to your face. Black and Hispanics between 14 to 21. They must get stopped. They're plaintiffs in a federal class action lawsuit that claims the NYPD is violating a 2010 state ban on quotas, speaking out together for the first time. At the end of the month, these officers, whoever don't have that arrest or those few summonses, they're pressured to find something. You might not see nothing. You're supposed to be visible. You might not see anything, but you go hunting, like bounty hunting for an arrest, locking up some, some old guy, some homeless guy, finding somebody who's riding a bicycle on the sidewalk, who's spitting, and you bring him in. The problem is when you go hunting, when you pull any type of numbers on a police officer to perform, we are going to go to the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable. Of course. We're going to go to LGBT community. We're going to go to the black community. We're going to go to those people that have no vote, that have no power. If we start doing what we're doing in midtown Manhattan, a phone call to the mayor's office is going to be made. That's going to be the end of it. We're the predators, they are the prey. The worst thing you can have is a police officer that needs an arrest for the month. So you're all minorities. How does that make you feel? It's, it's horrible. This is something coming from the top that trickles its way down, and this is why we're all here today. We first interviewed Officer Edwin Raymond last month. He says he's been recording conversations with NYPD officials for the past two years in an effort to prove alleged quotas and retaliation against cops who don't rack up numbers. They're breaking the law. Raymond's claims elicited this expletive from the police commissioner. Bull is it bullshit is my response to that. The commissioner insists his policies are focused on the quality of arrests and summonses, not the quantity. The officer's attorney. Is the commissioner lying? Yes. Commissioner Bratton is lying. How can you prove this? I can prove it with testimony, with recordings, with documents. All he wants us to do is go out there and lock them up. They told us it's, 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 it's easy to get numbers out here because you... You work in this type of community. Are you arresting for stuff that you shouldn't be arresting for? Well, that's why we're here. We don't do it. We refuse. And because of that, we are retaliated against. Because you're not harassing people, you're being punished. You know? And it, it doesn't make for a great work environment because they want you to harass people. The lawsuit claims minority officers are punished more severely than white cops for failing to meet quotas. The city denies it. And the community are suffering the most. Because? Because the pressure, because the quota. Because the police department is like a whore pretending to be a lady. That's what they are. Are you worried? You know, this is a big step to come forward like this. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, we are the enemies. We are the people that nobody talked to. The culture of the department, we are the rats. That's how they call us. They are, we are the rats that speak out. It takes a lot of guts from a rat to stand where we stand knowing that our career are basically over the second we speak against such a mafia because the, the police department is a mafia. It's a, it's a big organized mafia. Again, the police commissioner declined to go on camera to address the allegations. The city has asked a judge to dismiss portions of the lawsuit, claiming the officers haven't begun to prove a case either for quotas or racial discrimination. We will have much more on the story at 11, including what the cops say happens when they don't meet the numbers. Yourself. Yeah. You know, you know, although I've I've heard this clip maybe thirty times, it's just still you know, it's 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 just unconscionable that 
people don't see this as slavery. You know, they called it hunting and predators and all of that stuff. It's it's the slave patrols all over again. You know, there are those that even say that the word officer phonetically comes from overseer. You know, that all the word traces back to that. You know, and so when we start looking at going, you know, we have to go back to the Constitution. If the Constitution is supposed to be the supreme law of the land, then we look at, again, 13th Amendment, which is our foundation, and we look at what happened, what was the first thing they did when they passed the 13th Amendment, because we can prove that within the first two years, the prisons went from 90% white to being 90% black. And how did they do it? Again, they started hunting. They started being predators on the people going after them for anything. And so the first thing you look at, if we, you know, if we even take the Fourth Amendment, you know, we know New York, the first thing they did was started violating everyone's Fourth Amendment with the, the stop and frisk. You know, stop and frisk has been going on in New York for as long as I can remember. You know, it's not anything new. It became new once it made the news. But anyone from New York have always known that stopping for what? Not even just New York City. I'm sure, you know, I'm originally from West Baltimore. I experienced it as a child in West Baltimore. You know, just being I mean, isn't isn't wanting to search my yourself? I mean, isn't walking isn't walking while black or driving while black just a, a metaphor? Just metaphors for what what. What is the same thing what you're talking about that you experienced as a child? Yeah, because they because they play on the statistics. They figure if you stop enough, you're bound to get something. And the numbers don't match the, the uh, statistics because when they when they did the search of all of the people stopped between 2006 and 2011, it was over 600,000 people, and they got less than five percent of arrests. You know, so. It goes to show that stopping frisk is just violating people's Fourth Amendment's rights and it's getting no results. Now, if they were coming back saying it resulted in 95, 95% of the people being caught with illegal weapons and things of that nature, the argument could be a different argument. But when you stop over 600,000 people and you get less than 5% success rate, you know, you're already violating their rights to begin with. But you don't even have, again, the counter-argument. See, the counter-argument will be, well, 95% of these people, you know, fit within the reasonable suspicion. You know, or they fit within something. But when you're just saying stop anyone from 16 to 21 or anyone wearing this type of clothing, that you're just profiling. That's all it is, is clear profiling, because I always refer back to Trayvon Martin. When George Zimmerman got out of his car to go after Trayvon, the only thing that Trayvon had done, and the crime that Trayvon committed in George's mind was the fact that Trayvon was a black kid in his neighborhood, walking while black. Because if he was a white person, it would have been overlooked. He wouldn't have even paid him any money. But because we've been criminalized, 
it's already in a lot of people's minds that we don't belong in certain neighborhoods. So just the mere fact of us walking down the street automatically makes us suspicious. It gets suspicious calls all the time. You can look at some of these police blogs and everything. They, they talk about it all the time. They get so many calls of a suspicious person, and all the person was doing was walking down the street. Black person. You know, so they come in, they start violating that Fourth Amendment, and it all goes downhill from there because we know once they get the person, you know, once they get the person in the in in the system, it's very hard for them to get out. You know, the Fourth Amendment. We can just go down the line. I'm not even gonna because it's so late. We we covered so many things tonight. Right, right, really and we still, we still, we still, we still. We still have our regular segments to get to, so I want to toss it to Otis and let him give some commentary because we're going to start uh, your segment, which was supposed to start last week, yourself, uh, about the uh, reading parts of the Constitution and and the so-called rights of what it says you have as an American citizen. So, But let's toss it to Otis while you prepare for that. Uh, after Otis, we'll take a station identification break and get to our regular segments and let me just give those segments out that we still have so like I stated we were supposed to start last week but this week for sure we will begin the new segment hosted by Yusef Hassan where we will listen to him uh, read so that we may examine and discuss the US constitutional rights citizens are alleged to have and how they tie into slavery both past and present uh, also, we have our abolitionists and profile, which is also combined in the segment for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion. This week, we are featuring Gabriel's rebellion. Most people know him as Gabriel Prosser, but there are some historians who say he doesn't even have a last name. There's no record of a last name, but they do agree that a victim of slavery by the name of Gabriel on this day on this day, so stay tuned for that that segment, but on this day, he launched a, a rebellion against slavery, all right, and then we have our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, who is Desmond Ricks, who in June, after 25 years in prison, was exonerated for a murder he did not commit. Now he's free and getting reacquainted with his family which he barely knows probably because of the human trafficking probably had him in another state maybe clear across the country uh, that's very common so Ricks is grateful but also still seeking justice so we'll uh, cover that as um, our writer of the 21st century underground railroad um, so yeah um, Otis what do you have to say about those slave catchers admitting to what they were calling it a uh, criminal organization, we, calling it exactly. a mafia? They, but, exactly. They're, yeah. they're telling you exactly what's going on. And and the thing that gets me is once they say it, if you look how the system, the, the, the police chief didn't even want to talk about it publicly. But that's the part that I get into. As a matter of fact, I got blocked by a guy like Sean King that writes on this stuff is supposed to be experts on it when I say well why aren't you pursuing these people a couple of Spanish officers several years ago came out just before this one and and sued the the, the New York Police Department got paid or, or under the table and retired and moved on 
because they were saying the same thing. This broken window, stop and frisk. They're saying, look, you're sending us out here lying to the public, saying that there's no quotas. But then if we don't make the quotas, we're getting passed over and the people who are or playing, you know, following the rule of quotas are making 160 to $170,000 a year with overtime, but we're getting stuck with eighty or 90000 because we won't play the game. So it, it wasn't even a question of whether or not they were morally concerned. They were upset that they couldn't get on the on the list for overtime because they wouldn't go out and do the quotas. So it is a system of mafia. You know, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yousef did a great job on that, bringing it up. All right. So we do have a caller, and we want to take this caller. Um, We will go to the name on the board is Pinch. So we're going to Pinch. Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. Um, what's on your mind? We got about four minutes till we uh, hit the top of the hour, take our station identification break and go into our regular segments, kicking it off with Yousef and his his um, his study of the United States Constitution, which primarily on this program, the part, the amendment we focus on is the 13th Amendment, which is proof and evidence and a definition for some who don't know that slavery was never abolished. But Pinch, thank you for calling in. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Hey, uh, I had a I had a question. Uh, 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 I'm driving this truck, you know what I mean. So I'm I'm pulling over right now to get a little fuel and talk to you guys. Uh, my question was. With all that's being said, you know what I mean? And this is just coming from the uneducated, average, so-called African-American in this country who's not educated to the fact that they're still enslaved, who's not educated to the fact that slavery is the life's blood of white supremacy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What, what, what what can they do? I know what they can do. First, they got to educate themselves that there is a situation that they need to avoid and, and be aware of and fight against. But what can they do that's getting up every day to go to work for these people that, 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 that propagate this slavery, you know what I mean, every day just so they can feed their families? I was listening to uh, a rapper one day, and he was uh, at a forum, and he was saying uh, he got upset because he hear black militants say, uh, we need to separate. We need to uh, get away from them. And he said, well, hold up. Do you feed yourself? Do you clothe yourself? Can you render, can you render, yourself, can you render medical attention to yourself? He said, we need all these people, all these white people that y'all mm. say we need to separate from. We got to have them right now because we can't do none of that stuff for ourselves. Well, what you're you know talking what I mean? about, Pinch, we, if, we're not if, doing it if I may interject, what you're talking about is the infrastructure. And that's really what you mean. Uh, do we have black nurses, doctors, and people who could 
uh, do those jobs oh, if we sure. had our own yeah. infrastructure. Well, we do have our own infrastructure. Our ancestors and we pay taxes to pay for those hospitals, the public roads, the you know the public portion of the health system. So that is our system. So. I don't see how you can separate and I mean, I, I, I can see separation in terms of black people moving to certain Southern states where you become the dominant population, but we all got to still be on the same page politically where we could dominate political office and, and even like remake the constitution if we don't like it in those states. Now there is some doable uh, autonomy that I see but there's no going to be no armed confrontation and we're going to do like the former confederates did and we're succeeding from the union no that's 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 no black people ain't ready for that they not they, they they not about to do that but to answer your question though about the every the term they use everyday joe or 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 joanna um that has a job just trying to feed their family what can they do? We covered it a little bit earlier in tonight's broadcast when we was talking about the city of Cincinnati uh, voting their council, voting to then make a request. Obviously, they don't have the power to make it happen, but uh, making a request to the Cincinnati for the city of Cincinnati pension fund that's for all the city workers and everyone to start divesting from companies that got a connection to private prisons modern day slavery they ain't call it modern day slavery but they said that private prisons are immoral and we want the pension board to vote to divest um we reported over the years about students like in california uh, getting a, a, I think it was the California University system, but getting them to divest their pensions from private prisons. I think that was like over a billion dollars. Uh, Columbia University as well. So I think Yousef also brought it up earlier, like he was uh, uh, describing how when he was working for the corporate on the corporate plantation and how his 401k was invested in certain funds that he could call up and get information about what he's invested in and in the names of these companies in these different funds they group group together and i can attest to that because i had a 401k where i could control it like that they give you the information it's upon you to look it up and see what these companies are invested in instead of just looking at how much profit they add into your portfolio or whatnot so it's got to be some moral investment but that's something everyday people can do also in terms of avoiding as we talked about earlier uh, the Angola 3 um, but it's just two remaining um, but um, Albert King former political prisoner Black Panther Albert King and Albert uh, excuse me Robert King and Albert Woodfox said that they're putting something together to identify uh, these companies and so they, they're, we, can eat, we can divest from those companies through, for us who are lucky enough to even have a job to have a 401k but we can also boycott those mom and pop stores or stop purchasing from them online if they are connected to private prison but I didn't mean to interrupt you Pinch but I just wanted to provide you with that information in case you you know tuned in kind of late so please continue sir no. Yeah, let's take our break. We'll come back to Pinch, let him wrap up his comments, and then we'll go to Yousef 
uh, for his weekly segment that will be premiering tonight. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. We broadcast this program every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. We're in overtime right now. Normally, Mind, Body, and Spirit Radio will be on, um, but our hosts for that program, Sister Black Rose and Feather Light, are in Houston. And, and uh, right, they are impacted by that flood, but they are not flooded out. The neighborhood that they, or the uh, yeah, part of the city that they are in, um, they are not flooded out, but they are without power. But she still has access to uh, communications and, and the internet. So uh, keep your thoughts and prayers uh, with them. We'll also be uh, reporting uh, more on efforts uh, by Tando Radio Show, uh, people affiliated with RDP, uh, Real Deal Preppers who are going to put together a contingent of black people going to help black people in Houston. So again, we'll we'll um, continue with this conversation on the other side of this break. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All right, welcome back to the new Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. Again, check us out at btrcommunity.com and get your yearly subscription and help fund independent black media. Uh, Pinch, go ahead and and finish up your comments. Sorry to interrupt you, um, but go ahead uh, with your comments, sir. Yes, uh, I was just saying, yeah, uh, that's, 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 that's a beautiful answer you gave me about divesting from these firms. And I understand that other things you can do, like, you know, not buying from certain companies and, and, and certain banks, not put your money in certain banks because they're, they're, uh, the ones that underwrite these, uh, these, these companies to be able to build these prisons and, and, and house, uh, uh, these slaves these modern day slaves. Uh, but for the average you know, the average uh uh person out here don't have a four one K. You know what I mean? They don't have investment. You know what I mean? It's more important for them to feed their family than it is to save a dollar. You know what I mean? What I was uh really wanting to uh know is what happens let's say tomorrow we wake up. And by the grace of God, everything you've been fighting for has come to fruition. Where these, where certain, enough, not, I ain't gonna say it never will be total, but enough of these white folks say, hey, we on board, we're gonna abolish this, we're gonna change that Fourth Amendment. If you do go to jail for a crime, you're just gonna be there until you're rehabilitated or we feel like you're rehabilitated. What happens, what happens, what happens then? You want me to take that, Scotty? Yeah, yeah go I'm, ahead. I'm, you I'm, self, I'm going to go around a lot of noise, like I said. Yeah, go ahead. You but self. I'm going to listen to you. All right, go ahead. No, you no, self. no. Stay, stay on because, you know, we, we welcome you. Don't mute myself. I'm just going to mute myself until I get back quiet. Okay. I just, okay. First of all, thank you for the question. I mean, 
you know, that's that's the forward thinking that we need to have within the movement, which some of us have, but many of us don't. And, you know, we know it's unrealistic that we're going to wake up with that tomorrow. That would be great. But this is why we mentioned many times that we have several fronts that we're working on because it's not just about getting the 13th Amendment, of, you know, the, the exception clause uh, abolished or taken out of the 13th Amendment because if it just stops there, then we'd really be making the same, the same mistake that our ancestors made with the Civil Rights Movement to where once they got Brown versus Board of Ed and they got this, the uh, Civil Rights Act and the Voters' Rights Act, that that was it, that there was no plan from there. You know, so we can't make that same mistake. You know, the whole thing about those who, re those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Well, we do know that history, and we're not going to repeat that history. So one avenue is getting the, 13th, the exception clause of the 13th Amendment removed. But it just doesn't stop there because we know we're dealing with a mindset as well. Not just what's written on paper. There's a mindset of a people having this superiority complex that has to be removed. And then we also have our other issues within ourselves of not supporting each other, not uniting on many issues, not taking control of our neighborhoods, not knowing the importance of owning our own businesses, of owning the homes in our neighborhoods, of having our school systems. So we have a lot of avenues that tie into all of that that has to, that has to be worked on and put in place. So we know it just doesn't end with the one that it's going to take a collective effort. We have a lot of work to do, and this is why we need all hands on deck, because it's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, one of the things I think about all the time is when Harry, you know, we, 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 we often quote Harriet Tubman when she said, I freed a thousand slaves, I would have been able to free a thousand more had they known they were slaves or had they believed they were slaves. And I don't think we really contemplate that statement as, as much as we should. I mean, we know, we know the horrors of chattel slavery, what went on back pre-1865. And so for people to be living in those conditions and not realize they were slaves, that says a lot right there. That speaks volumes right there. That for people to be living under those type of conditions and not realize they were enslaved. So now we fast forward nowadays where we have a few little perks. You know, we can eat at this restaurant or live in this neighborhood and all of these things. So a lot of people think that they've made it. So we have that mentality of the fight as well. That no, it's not there. That that has to be fixed. The last thing I want to mention so I can toss it to my, my comrades on the line is you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if you've heard of BDS, which is Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. That's really the, that's, that's also part of the goal, where we know the part about boycotting. We know the importance of boycotting. You know, I often refer to the Montgomery bus boycott. It lasted 381 days. We probably wouldn't, nowadays we probably wouldn't be able to get a, a bus boycott going for three hours. It went for 381 days with people walking miles to and from work. 
who had physical jobs as well, where they were on their feet all they, day. They were also carpooling, though. They it, it was black folks with rides. They were oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, was, they, yeah. Was, they was carpooling as well. They definitely was carpooling. You know, then we had, uh, so now we have the talk of boycotting the NFL. You know, will we be able to boycott in a, in a, in a, in a manner that would really affect the bottom line to the NFL to where to where they really see it as an effect we don't know we'll find out soon enough right but right we've we've seen successful boycotts we know what happens with the divesting there's another thing that got divested I think it was uh something in Seattle I can't think of what it is well, it well, well you said you mentioned earlier in, in Seattle you mentioned earlier Sorry. yourself the LBGT community, and they quickly divested from Charlotte, North Carolina, over that bathroom bill. Uh, PayPal yeah, is supposed NBA to bring three hundred so jobs to NBA. Yeah, we've seen the effects. But listen, we got to get to your segment. Uh, but um, the day slavery ended is something I was able to look up and find. This was penned by Marx Max Parthis. Uh, the co-host and producer of New Abolitionist Radio, who's on vacation now, who's probably listening mm-hmm. along with his family. Shout out to the Parthis family. But he he posted this. This is from 2015, but he had written it earlier than that, and it's titled The Day Slavery Ended. Now, I'm going to post this post in BTR Community's plan, and I've already posted the link uh, for the NAR planning for today's which is August 30, 2017. So if you are uh, following the page, New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook, click that link for the NAR uh, planning August 30th. And that is, you'll find all the links to the stories we've discussed tonight. And you'll find a link to uh, Max's note, which is titled The Day Slavery Ended. So this is, this is what Max said. I'm not going to read it all because it's kind of long, but just part of it the day slavery ended the president of the united states made this shocking statement today in light of circumstances and after much planning and preparation today we been we begin closing our borders to incoming or outgoing international travel and begin freezing season all financial accounts assets related to the following people companies or corporations geo CCA, CEC, G4S, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, the Vanguard Group, the Cheneys, the Bushes, the Clintons, a long list, etc. Effective immediately, all officers, stockholders, associates, and personnel of said entities are to consider themselves material witnesses and are required to turn themselves in at the nearest police or sheriff station for statements and questioning. We have already detained the primary people named. We are also already in the process of bringing all U.S. troops stationed in foreign lands home to U.S. soil and are suspending all financial or military aid to other nations. We are closing Guantanamo and a number of secret bases internationally effective immediately. Our longtime foes, allies, nor any other members of the global community need not fear for their national safety and security, nor for ours. Let the history of the world remember that on this day, America cast slavery from her midst forevermore and returned freedom and equality to the dreams of her citizens. America will be 
the land of the free starting today. God willing, we the people will rebuild and restore her from the ground up if necessary. Effective immediately, all police stations will be seized and managed by the National Guard who will be empowered to conduct an immediate investigation of all records and personnel. We ask that all U.S. law enforcement officers peacefully stand down, turn in your firearms and badges while we conduct our investigation with your willing cooperation and assistance. Any domestic terroristic threats will be met accordingly by the U.S. military. Effective immediately, the following groups and paramilitary organizations are considered domestic terrorist groups. A long list of racist groups like the KKK, uh, NSM, etc. We ask that all citizens go about their normal day as best as possible, but we are setting a curfew for 9 p.m. until further notice. We ask that you use public transportation whenever possible passes will be issued by military personnel for anyone required to be out after 9 p.m. American streets will be patrolled and kept safe by the U.S. military until we have passed the worst of our trials effective immediately all U.S. federal and private prisons, jails, and detention center staff will be replaced with military appointees while we conduct investigations and sift through records. Effective immediately, there will be no further court proceedings while these pillars of our nation and bastions of democracy are also investigated city by city and state by state. Until further notice, the Supreme Court has been suspended pending an elected civilian-led investigation. Congress and the Senate are under guarded house arrest right now and expected to cooperate with investigations 100% effective immediately. We will begin an orderly release of all men and women from prisons or jails who have been incarcerated for victimless crimes, nonviolent drug-related crimes, or alleged crimes of poverty such as homelessness or outstanding state, paternal, and commercial debts. Effective immediately, we will also begin releasing all children in detention centers under the age of 18 who are not deemed a danger to themselves or society. All others will have their charges re-evaluated case by case in a speedy manner. We'll be working with our neighboring nations and national committees to determine a working plan to release all detainees at immigration detention centers effective immediately. Now it goes on and on. I mean, it's pretty much a detailed uh, plan of what it should look like um, you know, on the day that slavery ended, and I'll just leave you with this uh, part right here where he talks about it should be similar to the Nuremberg trials when they put the Nazis on trial. That's what the investigations exactly. would be for, to put all these slavers on trial for their crimes against humanity. So that's what it would look like when we figure out that the United States military and even these current slave catchers, they are us. They are our cousins, they are uncles, aunts, cousins, children. And so when we are able to to take care of the slavers' mindset in our own household, it'll make the job um it'll make that transition to the day that slavery finally ended that's so much uh, smoother. Might even be bloodless, as Max is calling here, but you know, if you're a slaver and you want to, you know, talk about that long live the Confederacy crap, then you can just get put down like your ancestors did. So, uh, yeah, we want to move to our next segment, which is Yousef 
and his regularly weekly segment on the U.S. Constitution. Yousef. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, to uh, reread the 13th Amendment, because that's always going to be the foundation. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for, for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So, we covered earlier the uh, definitions of slavery and involuntary servitude and what a slave is. So now, when we trace the history of the first step, you know, we always go back to the source. You know, when it, when it was first implemented, what was the first thing done? And so I, I think, you know, the, the very first thing as, a, as it applies to now is it starts taking away all of the rights of the individual. So we know just from our discussion this, this, this evening that the Fourth Amendment is under, under attack. You know, that it's basically been suspended. All of these, the Fourth, Fifth, the Sixth, the Eighth, the Ninth, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, all of them has, have basically been suspended, you know, based on your skin color, you know, who you are, all of these, these things matter. So let's just look at the Fourth Amendment. So the Fourth Amendment states that it's the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, you know, that's, that's really a bunch of baloney that's written right there because we see what happens as to how it's applied. Everything looks good on paper, but how do they apply it? You know, so let's take the average officer. Let's take these New York City officers. So these New York City officers say, you know, when we go out, we have to make an arrest. We have a quota. we got to get an arrest. So we're going to prey on the weak, the unrepresented. So we're going to go there, and the first thing we're going to do is either stop someone illegally stop them, and you could take this for, you know, if you're ever in New York City and you're in Harlem and you're going to get on the FDR on the uh, West Side Highway right there at, uh, what is that, the 126th Street entrance right there, usually they have these stops right there. These stops are literally illegal, you know, because when you, when you, when you, turn, you make that left turn, you're kind of like trapped in this little short block, and the cops are usually blocking the block right there so you can't back up or go forward, and they're going to come to you and ask for your license and registration. Have no reason to stop you. They're saying whatever they're saying. They have all different reasons as to, oh, we there are, you know, there are a lot of clubs in the area, people may be drinking, all kinds of stuff, but literally, 
It's an illegal stop. They have no reason to stop the vehicle. But they stop and they, you know, they always ask people for their license, registration, and insurance costs without probable cause, without any type of warrant. And quite naturally, people are going to comply. So they force you into giving up your Fourth Amendment rights. Or it's the same as, you know, the, the 17-year-old child walking down the street coming home from school. You know, he has a hoodie on and maybe his pants are sagging. And they can just pull up on him and stop him because, you know, he lives in East New York or he lives in East Baltimore or he lives, you know, in Eastover, South Carolina. They can just stop them. So they already, because of because of this slavery clause, this this uh, exception clause to the Thirteenth Amendment, we've laid out all kinds of information this evening to where they have these quotas. They need to fill these beds, or these prisons are going to close. So the first thing they do in order to fill these beds is they have to stop people. They have to stop them. They have no probable cause to stop them, or they rarely have probable cause to stop them, or they come up with their own types of probable cause. One of the things that they say, I've, I've heard it said in many trials, based on, my, based on my training and experience, that's usually one of their code words that they use, sort of like the I feared for my life. Another thing that they like to say is based on my training and experience. So just the mere fact of you walking up to your homeboy, giving him a pound, you know, in 138th and, you know, Morningside Avenue, which may or may not still be a drug-infested area. Many of the areas are no longer drug-infested because they've been gentrified. But you could stop, give your man a pound, and because of that, he can say because based on his training and experience, they were exchanging drugs, hiding it through a handshake. And that's what he'll say his probable cause was stopping, for stopping the individual was. And we've seen what happens. You know, we just had the two cases in Baltimore where officers are planning drugs. They got caught on video cameras planning drugs. You know, so these are, these are some of the ways that they're using to uh, strip people of their Fourth Amendment rights. That deals with the search and seizure. Same thing goes with the warrants. You know, that a lot of times they don't actually have warrants. You know, that what they do, you know, if they, they there's different types of warrants. There's the no-knock warrant and there's the, there's the, there's the knock warrant, there's the no-knock warrant. Then there's exceptions to the warrant. You know, where they can claim that it was exigent circumstances. For instance, a person fleeing a crime scene and he goes into a home. Based on you know, based on the Fourth Amendment, there's an exception that they can bypass entering the home without having a warrant. Because they say it's exigent, exigent circumstances, the person could have gone into the home and destroyed evidence. The other thing is the, the uh, clear view principle where they can claim that they saw something. They always, you know, miraculously seeing things. You know, so many cases of them stopping people's cars and you know, the car had tenant windows and it's, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and they're able to see something, you know, under the seat 
in the car without even shining the flashlight on the car. You know, so they, they have many ways to bypass these. And again, it ties into the 13th because they have this incentive because there is a price on the head of every individual. You know, I believe the national the national average is about twenty to thirty thousand dollars for adults and close to two hundred thousand dollars for children. So the first thing they have to do is strip that Fourth Amendment right. What that also does is the program that Jeff Sessions is re-implementing that um, search and seizure. Uh, what is it called? Asset seizure program, where it's literally yeah. highway robbery, and they don't even have to charge you uh, with the crime. Yeah, oh, thank, yeah, thank, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Yeah, simple that's, asset that's the new thing now. So, go ahead, Otis. Yeah, Otis wanted to chime in. Go so, ahead. Yeah, I'm saying simple, simple asset forfeiture. They're bringing it back stronger, and and uh, Sessions is pushing it really hard, which means they're probably going to loosen some of the restrictions on how it's applied and how they share the money with the localities. It's going to be worse. Uh, you, when when they say yourself. localities, yeah. specifically, yeah, you should say the slave catchers because it's going to the participating poli- law enforcement departments. It's not like it's going to some general fund that's going to build parks and recreation centers for the people. No, it's going to go to those police departments to pay overtime. Oh, yes, yeah. exactly. exactly. And, and then what you have, you have different law enforcement agencies competing for the same booty. You know, that's that's what starts happening because, you know, with with everything there's the state there's the state level of law enforcement and then there's what well, there's the municipality, there's the county, there's the state, and there's the federal, and then, you know, within the federal, there's several different law enforcement agencies. And I've seen plenty of instances where you'll have the municipality there, the county there, the state there. You'll have, you know, the DEA, the FBI, uh, ATF, all of them there, and all of them basically competing over who's the one that actually is going to get the booty from whatever happened, whether it's an arrest or whether it's an asset seizure. You know, so there's a fight over this money. And it's no different than if it was on the auction block. You know, that it's going to go to the highest bidder. Who's going to benefit from it the most? And they actually compete over this. There are arguments over it. They argue in court. They go before a judge. You know, where the, local, where the municipalities say, well, look, it's our arrest. It was a good arrest. And then, you know, the other agency are coming in and say, well, look, we had an ongoing investigation for the past six months, you know, that they interfered, they interfered with our investigation. So all of this is going on under the guise of law enforcement, what they're doing, the Fourth Amendment violations. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to start going into the other ones. That's one of the first steps. Okay. Okay. The Fourth Amendment of the Constitution has basically been suspended. It still exists on paper, 
but it no longer exists on the streets. Well, we're going to take our, no longer exists. We're going to take our last station identification uh, break of the night. We got two more segments. Our next segment, when we come back on the other side, will be um, our featured abolitionist and focus on a historical uh, rebellion against slavery. So Gabriel, many of us know him as Gabriel Prosser, um, but he may not have had even had a, a last name. There seems to be no record of the last name, so I guess they're throwing whoever was uh, enslaving him's last name onto his. So I'm just going to call him Gabriel. You know, I'm not even going to attach his name to the person who victimized him. So you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, broadcasting every Wednesday night from 8 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. We're in overtime tonight again. Our thoughts and prayers are with the victims of Hurricane Harvey, which made landfall in Louisiana. Uh, today as well and of course Houston it's going to be some time uh, before Houston recovers if it recovers all right we'll be back on the other side Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. This is Scotty Reed in on this broadcast from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. But make no mistake, slavery is a global uh, institution. Um, I mean, if you saw the video and the UN report on the open slave markets that were occurring in Libya after the overthrow, the U.S. and, and might as well say the UN too, the U.S. UN NATO overthrow of the sovereign country of Libya, which was uh, headed at the time before his his uh, state-sanctioned murder, Muammar Gaddafi. But our abolitionist in profile tonight. Remember, we are combining two segments, but our abolitionist in profile tonight is a victim of slavery by the name of Gabriel. Let me pull up his profile tonight. This comes to you via Wikipedia. You can check his, his sources. Uh, Gabriel, 1776. I mean, that's the same damn year that so-called America was uh, established. That was the year of the American Revolution, right? So he, he's... He's going it. Yeah, 1776. Uh, he's mm-hmm. sometime born and they don't have a date. But uh, he died on October the 10th in 18, 
no, this can't be correct in 1800s because then that would mean he was just four years old. So going to have to do some research and correct this on Wikipedia. I am a member of the Wikipedia community, and we'll look that up and get that changed. All right, so anyway, Gabriel, who is commonly, if incorrectly known as Gabriel Prosser, was a literate, enslaved blacksmith appreciate the language don't call him a slave call him enslaved but he was a literate enslaved blacksmith that means he had skill a marketable skill to earn him wages and to and earn and, and, and profit from his energy which was stolen but um gabriel planned a large slave rebellion in the richmond area in the summer of 1800 they're talking about virginia the broadcast home of tanya free and friends which was heard earlier today and every wednesday at two o'clock p.m eastern time on black talk radio network i bet you gabriel don't have no um statute or monument uh to this fr- true freedom fighter but i bet you might find somewhere in richmond a monument to uh general lee all right or, or some slaver like that but anyway he planned a large slave rebellion in the Richmond area in the summer of 1800. Information regarding the revolt was leaked prior to his execution. Man, that's what happened in Charleston, Charleston with Denmark Vesey. And somebody told mm-hmm. him, man, loose lips sink ships. All right. And plans for freedom. But the revolt was leaked prior to his execution. And he and 25 followers were taken captive and hanged in punishment. In reaction, Virginia and other state legislatures passed restrictions on free blacks. So, as well as prohibiting the education assembly and hiring out of slaves to restrict their chances to learn and to plan similar rebellions. That's very important there because what, what does it show? Me. What came first? Slavery or racism and white supremacy. Because, you know, uh, free blacks was was considered citizens of the colony of Virginia. Uh, This might have been after they became, it was probably a colony, but after the revolution became a state. So they then started implementing race-based laws. Later, like after 1865, everybody's familiar with the South's black codes and what have you. And 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 mm-hmm. so uh, again, like you know, we've discussed all throughout how law is passed, and then it is targeted. Doesn't mean that that law is going to affect everybody. Although it could be used to arrest anyone, but it's certain groups and certain people who are profiled and targeted for slavery. So, but this is the introduction of white supremacist laws to do what to ensure or to in the furtherance of slavery so again when we want to talk about tentacles and what the problem is white supremacy is a problem institutional racism is a problem but remember it is a tool that was used to ensure the foundation of slavery so in when I talk about ending slavery that incorporates what other people call uh, white supremacy and eliminating that it, it all connects to slavery you know that's just what I'm trying to tell people and Max tries to tell people when you use the language of mass incarceration you know it's slavery so here's some background and a little bit what we know about Gabriel 
He was born into slavery at Brookfield, a tobacco plantation in Henrico County, Virginia. Gabriel had two brothers, Solomon and Martin. They were all held in bondage by slaveholder Thomas Prosser. See, I knew it. Uh, the owner of Brookfield. As Gabriel and Solomon were trained as blacksmiths, their father may have had that skill. Gabriel was also taught to read and write. By the mid-1790s, as Gabriel neared the age of 20, he stood six feet two or three inches high. His long and bony face, well made, was marred by the loss of his two front teeth and two or three scars on his head. White people as well as black people regarded the literate young man as a fellow of great courage and intellect above his rank in life. I mean, what what was his rank in life? He was a piece of property or treated as a piece right. of property. He was enslaved. Uh, Gabriel's Rebellion. Gabriel planned the revolt during the spring and summer of 1800 on August the 30th. That's today, tonight rather. On August the 30th, 1800, Gabriel intended to lead uh, victims of slavery into Richmond, but the rebellion was postponed because of rain. The, the, uh, the slavers had suspicion of the uprising and, and two victims of slavery told their owner, Mosby Shepherd, about the plans. He warned Virginia's governor, James Monroe, didn't he later become a president, uh, who called out the state militia Gabriel escaped downriver to Norfolk, Virginia, but was spotted and betrayed there by another slave. Man, come on, people, we got to get it together. I mean, I know the pressure is on us, and they even threaten you, threaten your lives, but you know, some causes is worth dying for, and abolition is worth dying for. Gonna give your life, Absolutely. give your life for other human beings and whatnot. You're not gonna, well, you're gonna be set free and able your spirit to be released to transition uh, to to you know that next realm. But man, you betray you betray so many. You betray humanity. Actually, you know, I'm, I don't want to victimize the victim, but at some point we got to be willing to set that fear aside of death and just be willing to die. Uh, what's that old saying? You know, get free or die. Give me. Well, right. I was listening to Malcolm X last night. A clip. He said, "What did Patrick Henry say?" He said, "Give me liberty or give me death." Give me liberty or give me death. That's how I gotta be. All right. So Gabriel was returned. Uh, excuse me. Uh, he warned Virginia's governor James Monroe, who called out the state militia slave catchers. Gabriel escaped downriver to Norfolk, but he was spotted and betrayed by another victim of slavery. Uh, for the reward offered by the state. Not because they was threatening his life or, or her life or anything like that. No, they wanted some money, possibly so they could buy their own freedom was probably what they was thinking. That enslaved person did not receive the full reward. I guess they wasn't going to give them enough to purchase their freedom. So Gabriel was returned to Richmond for questioning, but he did not submit. See, he didn't snitch. Gabriel and his two brothers and 23 others were hanged. So, New Abolitionist Radio salutes Gabriel and all of those who followed him in uh, getting freedom or dying. So, they died. They are martyrs to the cause of abolitionism, and we salute them. Uh, brothers, do y'all have any commentary on, on Gabriel's rebellion? Otis? No, I just... Uh... 
You yourself. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, brother, please. I said no. It, uh, other than the fact, the area you're talking about, you're right there in Virginia, ain't you, oldest? So you should know about some of that history. That's exactly what I'm saying. The the, the path that they would follow. I live not far from the Colonial Parkway, but when you start talking Henrico County through Richmond down the York River on to Norfolk, I'm about 30 miles from Norfolk, 45 miles from Richmond. So that gives wow. you an idea. And I live on a peninsula. So the idea that, that these people were trapped in a narrow band at, at the widest the peninsula is about six or seven miles wide. So you can tell that if, if you travel the river, whether you took the James River or the York River down, when you got to the bay, Chesapeake Bay, there's nowhere to go. So snitching on you with through plantations, uh, tobacco farms and, and plantations through here, there's nowhere to go if 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 the people wanted to uh, snitch you out, they basically, you know, had you channeled in. There's nowhere to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, my my family, you sell. You know, hearing this story, you know, and hearing his path and everything. Yeah, I'm familiar with Enrico County, and you know, like you were just talking about the James River and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I just say, you know. Salute to Brother Gabriel and his two brothers and the 23 others, you know, for, yeah, just putting their lives on the line. And I'm sure when they were doing this, it wasn't just for them, but they were doing it for others as well, you know, that they probably had the intentions to come back and get people as well. You know, I just salute them, man. As a matter of fact, know, I just been like, uh, b- before Scotty goes any further, I, I was, he was brought up the fact that there were free blacks. It's there's a place uh, up close to Jamestown. I just was on Facebook plotting that with some old friends that I grew up with. Uh, there's a there was a black gentleman who owned property there that was actually an advisor to three presidents during that period from the late 1790s right on through until something like uh, 1900 older guy and and right to this day his people his heirs are fighting over about 300 acres that's up close to that Jamestown area where free blacks actually he he ran newspapers and 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 was had the first black radio stations along this area on the east coast so I'm going to have to get some of that information later everyday essentials exciting prices I'm I'm sorry about that. If y'all heard that, um, it's I, okay. I was trying to pull up the next story, and it has a video. I thought I thought we were getting preempted by another show. No, no, that was my mistake. I was pulling up the next story. I write of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, and you know, uh, from the Detroit Free Press, and there's a video that goes along with it, and the ad just started automatically, and I was trying to mute it. But it wouldn't mute. But uh, yeah, go ahead and wrap up your comments, and then we'll go into our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad and give our final comments of the night. Um, so, so Otis, you were saying something. Oh, I was just saying that you were talking about free blacks, and I said I'll yeah, that people end up that like don't exist later, or never but existed. here up and down the East Coast, uh, free the. The, when you talk about what was going on with uh, the the gentleman, well, I just the name just left me, Mr. Prosser Gabriel. Gabriel. 
along during that time, there were actually free blacks that were doing commerce up and down the York River and the James River. And some of that property still holds today. I mean, it's, in, it's on marquees up and down the Colonial Parkway in the national system. So there's records of free blacks actually doing commerce during that time. Good history to know because it certainly they hide it from you and make you think. And and again, um, we're talking about victims of slavery, but don't necessarily think that just cause a person has melanated skin that that's their family heritage because there's a reason that plays into the propaganda of white supremacy is to suppress the fact that you had these large populations of free black people although they were experiencing racism and as we noted in in Gabriel's story that as a result of his rebellion they introduced racist laws restricting the movement of Uh, you know, you could say Jim Crow. Yeah, you know, Jim exactly. Crow didn't come after yeah. 1865. It, it came before. That's what they were all again to support the institution of slavery. So let's go to our writer of the 21st century underground railroad, who is Desmond Ricks. In June, after 25 years in prison, Ricks was exonerated for a murder he did not commit. Now free and getting reacquainted with a family he barely knows. Ricks is grateful, but also still seeking justice. On Thursday, Ricks and his family gather in a nondescript Farmington Hills office suite where, with the help of attorney Wolfgang Mueller, they filed a $125 million civil rights lawsuit. He's seeking reparations. That's what he's saying. He's a modern-day victim of slavery. Seeking compensation and punitive damages under federal and state law, the lawsuit names the 51-year-old and his two adult daughters, Akilah Cobb, 32, and Desiree Ricks, 25, as plaintiffs. Desiree was only five years old when her father was arrested for the murder. Akilah was seven years old. So they they, they kidnapped the, these children's father. And that's worth something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the impact of slavery on families. So... I want to play this video for this ad. <laughs> uh, Great style. Shout out Exciting to prices. Right now at Big Lots, save up to $100 on all sofas, love seats, and sections. Right, Take so it home today. Let's hear from these people themselves, this family. It was hard. You know, it was hard. It took me a long time just to get somebody to believe. Once I was incarcerated, you know, it took me a long time to find somebody to finally believe that, you know, this happened to me, that, you know, the police, you know, something did happen, you know? And, and like he, uh, like, like Wolf said, once the investigation started, and uh, it- okay, appear to be having some issues with streaming on freep.com. So I'm gonna stop it, and I'm again, this is linked up. Uh, in our show notes for tonight you can go check out the video maybe you'll have more luck with it but I'll read uh, some of the article from the Detroit Free Press at freep.com Desmond Ricks leaned against the wall as his family many of whom he was just getting to know milled about him they cooled over Ricks newborn 
great nephew Juan Jr. and made small talk about the fit of a good suit. The chatter, lighthearted and casual, was the type typically expected at a family get-together, but the reason for this reunion was anything but carefree. In June, after 25 years in prison, Ricks was exonerated for a murder he did not commit. Now free, getting reacquainted with a family he barely knows, Ricks is grateful but also still seeking justice. On Thursday, uh, already uh, conveyed that information. As defendants, again, when I talked about um, these children's father being ripped away, kidnapped like Solomon Northrop, and, t- and snatched from his children's lives and, 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 and their mother's lives and thrown into slavery. Uh, so as defendants, the lawsuits names two retired Detroit police officers, David Paunch, the evidence technician on the case, hmm, evidence technician, and Donald Stwazi, the officer in charge of the investigation that led to Rick's wrongful conviction. A lawsuit argues that the duo framed Rick's by fabricating bullet evidence, swapping out the bullets taken from the victim's body with bullets test fired from a gun belonging to Rick's mother. Wow, so they just rousted, you know, Fourth Amendment, as uh, Brother Yusef was talking about, uh, got his mother's gun, and then test fired it, and then swapped out the bullets. And, and oh, you got your mama's gun and committed this murder. I mean, wow. I was fighting from the beginning when I was arrested. I knew I wasn't guilty. I just had to convince the police of this, which I shouldn't have had to do. But that was my job at the time. They weren't seeing it any other way. But see, he didn't know at the time that they were setting them up. The people in charge were setting them. The slave catchers were setting them up. Said Ricks at the news conference, noting that prison was hell. Slavery is. I mean, all the accounts that I've read of slavery, it can be described as hell. Uh, I, it took me a long time once I was incarcerated to find someone to finally believe this happened to me, that the police did something. In March 1992, 21-year-old Gary Bennett was fatally shot while standing outside of a burger joint in Detroit. Bennett's friends, Ricks, was arrested in connection with the crime two days later. So not only did they frame him for a crime that he did not commit, but framed him for the murder of his own friend. Wow. A 38 caliber revolver kept under the pillow of his mother, Mary Ricks, was confiscated. The case against Ricks, Ricks rested heavily on the evidence of the gun and the bullets inside, which the prosecution, by way of the Detroit police investigation, claimed matched those removed from Bennett's body. Paunch, one of the defendants in the recently filed civil lawsuit, testified as an expert in ballistics, stating that the two bullets and evidence were fired from Mary Ricks Ross's 38 special handgun and from no other weapon. He claimed that the bullets that killed Bennett matched Ricks' mom's gun like a fingerprint. So in other words, he got up there and lied so that they could put this man into slavery. Stwazi, the other defendant, furthered this the conspiracy. This conference has reached its maximum duration and will end in one minute. Okay, so uh, it is just about to end our conference. I will dial back in. We're we're still going. So um, so if uh, we can get Otis is still dialed in or redial back in, and we can get yourself back in, and we can finish up our final comments. We have been on quite a bit on Wednesdays on air. So let me go ahead and take care of that. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt. 
this segment on our writer of the 21st century underground railroad our board only allows for like five hours at a time hopefully when if we can um raise some funds that happens you know this at the oh yeah we went over there all right now it's getting us back into the conference so let's get back you are the first participant on the call please hold while we wait for the others to join all right. Uh, yeah, we got Otis back on and uh, we got yourself back on. All right. So let me continue. Uh, so Stwazi, the lead detective, furthered the conspiracy. According to Rick's attorneys, they alleged that Stwazi provided the bullets test fired from the Rossi handgun to David Townshend, a court appointed expert and retired Michigan State Police firearms identification expert when townshend's question whether the bullets were actually from the victim's body so he had his doubts Stwazi assured him that they were a news release from Mueller law firm explained in closing arguments the prosecution stressed the importance of the ballistics evidence calling it the most powerful evidence in the case this gun that killed Jerry Bennett was found at his house the prosecutor declared in closing arguments in September of 1992 a Wayne Circuit County jury convicted Ricks of second degree murder and illegal use of a firearm I never heard anything about a motive he was sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison so you can read the rest of this story again it's linked up in our show notes you can find those linked up on new abolitionist radio facebook page and also in btrcommunity.com that's social media our social media platform so just want to said all of that to say welcome to freedom okay welcome to freedom brother desmond ricks and i hope you and your daughters and your daughters get your reparations the uh 125 million you asked for don't want to put a price tag on it because freedom is priceless but it, i hope you receive what you're asking for in this lawsuit guys uh comments on this story oh give give me just a but second and a lock in the our black lives anywhere in this country it's not just a one state or one city that does this it's just you sir yeah, man, I'm just sitting here because, you know, you know, these, these stories, I'm thinking about the jury sitting there, the whole system is set up, you know, when it comes to these grand juries and all of it, it's just one big fallacy, man. It's, it's, it's one of the fakest things that's set up. You know, you take by it. You have to pro- you know, witnesses have to testify. They don't have to produce any evidence. They don't have to do anything. So easy to get the indictment. As the saying is, you can indict a ham sandwich. Right. So because looking- he, yeah. For one thing, he's already given the preponderance of telling the truth. That's the bad part. <laughs> that's the next point I was getting ready <laughs> yeah. to make. You have these jurors where, you know, they're not us. They they have a very small restriction on who can even be a juror. So they already come in there with the mindset that the cops are right, the prosecutor is right, they did everything they were supposed to do, they, they followed the law because they watch investigation discovery and they watch 
you know, NYPD Blue and they watch Law and Order where they don't they don't make any mistakes. They don't lie. So they come in there and everything is the truth and so they just automatically vote to indict. So easy to get the person indicted. And it's so difficult to get an indictment dismissed. So once the person is in person is indicted, we know what happens next. You have one or two choices. Let them violate, you know, <laughs> your Sixth Amendment and get you to cop out, or you take your chances at trial because you're figuring, you know, I'm looking at this brother. This brother went to trial and he's saying to himself, look, I'm innocent of this. I can't take, you know, they probably were offering him 15 years, 20 years, probably had some public defender standing there or public pretender standing there saying, you know, they got the gun. I mean, you know, the ballistics match. And the brother's saying, no, man, that's, that. I didn't do it. Exactly. Taking exactly. it to trial. When this convention of now, it's not in your best thing. What they do when people go to trial and lose, this is how they deter everyone from going to trial. Because when a person loses, they give them a lot of time. You know, some states, people are getting over 100 years. Some are getting two and 300 years. So that's scare attack, keeping people from going to trial. But then you take an officer where you have video and hundreds of eyewitnesses telling you exactly what happened, and the jury can't seem to find the evidence to indict the person. You know, so that type of stuff really angers me. You know, I mean, really angers me when I hear these types of stories. And there's no, when they discover this, they just discovered this with them. There's no talk of, well, how many cases did this uh, this crime scene expert, how many cases was he involved in? Let's go back and look at the cases he was involved in. Or this lead detective. we got to go back and look at these cases. Because if they did it with this one, then there's a guarantee that there are more. They didn't just pick this one case to do this with. They did it with probably all of them. Do you think like I do? I, I did my first my first contact with the police department, I had actually just moved to Dallas and was working for a guy who owned nightclubs. I went literally went to the bank, jogged to the bank to cash a check, and on the way back about ten thirty in the morning, the police rolled up on me, lay me on the sidewalk. And the next thing I know, I'm at the bottom of the basement in the Dallas County jail system. And I don't know what the hell. I hadn't been in Dallas for a good three weeks. I have no idea what's going on. But being ex-military and all of that, I was just belligerent and raising hell. And I ain't talking to nobody. I need a lawyer. I need a lawyer. 1.30 the following night is when the owner of that nightclub comes back in town from Phoenix, where I met him in Arizona. And because I hadn't shown up for work and he knew I was new, he had friends in the Dallas Police Department, and he walks into the basement and starts laughing and tells me, well, Otis, uh, you see how it is here in Texas? And I'm livid. I'm saying, man, what kind of game is this? He goes, no, it's no game. He said, but they, they had you for some guy, and they called it the battery cable rapist. I literally went, when I got out, I went to the library and looked it up. That had a string of um, 
rapes going on for some 14, 15 months in that North Dallas area around Northwest Highway and uh, Skillman Avenue. And this is where his clubs were. But out of nowhere, because I happened to be a black guy running in the middle, running in that morning, they picked me up and they didn't give a damn about my rights. And that's when I realized how screwed up this system was, man. Right, I mean, right. that was literally an introduction to me that they didn't care. They were trying to make me say I did it. And if I had, if it hadn't been for his connection to the police department, I probably would have been railroaded. Yeah, and they wouldn't have cared that you was a veteran either or in the military, exactly. just like no, Dewan no. Hickerson. Um, and and there are about um, uh, 750,000 vets in prison right now, in prison slavery right now. Well, we do got to wrap it up, fellas. So we're going right. to, I'm going to give each uh, both of you, and I appreciate you sitting in with us for the three hours tonight, getting through this broadcast, a new abolitionist radio. Uh, again, shout out to Max's, uh, Max Parthis and his family, uh, the co-host and co-producer who is on uh, vacation right now. Uh, and get uh, preparing for some of his upcoming events. He actually told me today he might uh, be performing or going to a club, a poetry club, because y'all knows Max is a spoken word artist. And so he hadn't been able to go to this event because it happens on Wednesdays nights when he's doing New Abolitionist Radio. So since he's been on vacation for New Abolitionist Radio, he did mention to me that he was attending there uh, tonight. Uh, but I'm sure he probably was listening in by phone via the TuneIn app or going straight to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. So shout out to Max. Uh, but fellas, give you each one minute for some closing thoughts, final thoughts on on slavery and human trafficking as it exists by way of the 13th Amendment and just your final thoughts for tonight. Well, I don't really need a whole minute. I'm telling you, it's been an honor to spend five years with some people dedicated to understanding that this has been one of the biggest lies ever perpetrated on a nation. There is no such thing as abolition of slavery in 1865. It is the biggest lie, and we need to get these lawyers, public officials, to own up to the fact that it is a lie, and it's a lie that we need to put an end to. Abolition is the only way out. Yourself, right? Absolutely. Uh, again, it's it's a pleasure riding with you guys for this past three hours. It just felt like we were just in a car riding up I ninety five and having a discussion. Uh, thanks to everyone who tuned in, you know, and thanks to the uh, brother for calling in with this question. That was, you know, a great question. Uh, one thing that I just want to add because it was a second definition of slave that we didn't read from Webster's Dictionary, and I think that really puts a cap on it right there. It says, one who is under the power of a master and who belongs to him, so that the master may sell and dispose of his person, of his industry, of his labor, without his being able to do anything, have anything, or acquire anything, but what must belong to his master. And this is this is what we're fighting against. And it's a huge uphill battle because first thing is we have to just convince people that they're slaves or that slavery is still going on. We don't have to convince anyone in jail or anyone that's caught up in the system. We 
we don't have to convince them. They know. I mean, they they started this for us. They were the, they were the driving force behind the Millions for Prisoners march. You know, so they know. It's the people out here that need to learn. So, you know, I'm just I'm just glad to be along for the ride. You know, I'm learning from everybody as I go along. You know, and I'm, I'm I just appreciate I just appreciate the effort. You know, from everybody. You know, so many people that are involved in this movement, and sometimes you know we communicate so much and we just don't thank each other enough because. You know, when I hear these stories of, you know, the uh, abolitionists in profile, you know, that I realize that down the line it's going to come a time where some of us are going to make have to make the ultimate sacrifice for this movement. And so I just hope and pray that if the time comes during my lifetime that I don't fold up under pressure, you know, because I had no problems jumping out of airplanes and jungles and foreign lands for this slave master of a country. So I hope I don't fall under pressure for the movement. Amen. Word, word. Well, I have confidence to send me a message. Can you guys hear me? Yes. All right. Yeah, I've been struggling with my system over here. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to leave uh, the listeners with the words of uh, some co-hosts and co-producers of New Abolitionist Radio who are not here tonight. Uh, both of them are on hiatus. Uh, uh, and that is Yohanan Elia, who will always close with peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressor. And of course, as Max Parthis would say, revolution uh Oh, oh man I'm about to mess it up uh, abolition is a reason for revolution so we can finally know peace peace to the abolitionists rise up 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 just lift your eyes up let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up.